Welcome to episode 71 of Oscar Sunday. I'm Connor Azagari. And I'm Caleb Latre. And today is a fairly unique episode. Uh, Austin Johnson is not hosting today. He's out of town and he's left his show in my hands. So who knows what could happen today? <laughs> Filmgasm is taking I'm... over Oscar Sunday and shit's going to get weird. <laughs> Are we going to talk about the Oscars? Are we not going to talk about the Oscars? Who knows on today's show? <laughs> Kidding, don't worry, Austin. We'll talk about the Oscars. Yeah, don't it's Oscar Sunday. It'd be weird if we didn't. <laughs> what else would we talk about? Uh, so this becomes a, a wild card of what could happen in one night. <laughs> <laughs> so in honor of the release of Daniel Craig's final Bond adventure, No Time to Die, we're diving into 2012's Skyfall, his third adventure that grossed over a billion dollars worldwide, still the most successful Bond film in the entire franchise, and was nominated for five Oscars at the 85th Academy Awards. We'll get into that ceremony, as well as the individuals from Skyfall who've been nominated. And then, of course, Caleb and I will give our awards to Skyfall. But first, we're both huge Bond fans and have seen all 25 films, including No Time to Die, which we both saw opening night this past Thursday. We're going to try our hardest not to say anything to spoil that movie. But if we let something slip, we're sorry. I will say this is very good. Very, very good. Very good conclusion. I'll leave it at that. Oh, yes. More on Sunday. <laughs> yeah, more on sneak preview. Yeah, more on sneak preview. So we record on Sunday. Yeah, Monday. <laughs> more on Monday. I, my days are getting mixed up. I know. It's hard to keep all this shit straight. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so having seen all 25 films, uh, we've assembled our top five favorite Bond films. And uh, if you listen to Oscar Sunday, you know we love to do top fives here especially thematically, you know, Nicolas Cage, animated movies. We do it all. And of course, today it's going to be Bond, James Bond. Uh, one of the longest running franchises in movie history, 25 films strong, showing no signs of stopping, constantly able to reboot if necessary. It's a great franchise. A uh, little rapey, a little racist, true. But I feel it's gotten better. Uh, you know what? Like, I hate to be that guy, it came out, and I want to say, correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. No was 1962? Yes. Okay. Like, I'm not saying it was right, just how the times were back then. But, you know, I get, you know, I would get if, what people are coming from when this series first started back in 1962, because, I mean, yeah, I joke about it all the time, the fact that Sean Connery will sleep with the women in the movie and then slap them and, like, not a scene or two later. But, as you know, times have changed, decades have come and gone. You do see the franchise attempt to modernize with what's going on. And you do see that, like, okay, yeah, you know, it did some things that now are not okay, but as it's gone on, they've continued to improve on that and make it reflect the times. Yeah, you're right. It's a franchise that's constantly growing and kind of, you know, reflecting the world around it. Uh, to an extent, I mean, still in the, you know, in the 70s and 80s, you got characters like like the horrendously named Holly Goodhead, <laughs> Christmas Jones, and Pussy Jesus. Galore. Pussy Galore. I, I'll never get over that one. Like, that's too much one, for Austin, even Austin Powers. One movie is called Octopussy. I want to point this out. It's the title of the movie. <laughs> yeah. Also, the main Bond girl, a nickname given to her by her father, which is infinitely creepier than it needed to be. Yeah. Like, like I said, I'm not saying they're so questionable material, but they, for the most part, they try. Are we really that shocked that Bond loves pussy? I don't think we should be. 
No, it's been real, very well established. Yeah, good for him. Um, Bond has been played by six different actors in the main franchise. Sean Connery, George Lazenby, Roger Moore, Timothy Dalton, Pierce Brosnan, and Daniel Craig, all of whom bring their own particular style and flavor to the role. Now, we've all got our favorite Bonds. Everyone's is different. Favorite Bond movies. There's so much, you know, 25 to choose from now. And all of them have something to say. Every Bond film is decent in its own way, with few exceptions. But I'm excited to hear what you consider to be your top five. Uh, since you're the only other person in my immediate circle who's seen all 25 films like I have. So this ought to be interesting. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to me because, like, you know, for anyone who doesn't know a little bit of filmgasm history, you're about to get a little nugget here. You know, Connor, you've always, you've been like a lifelong fan. Like you've been into this way longer than I have. True. And I had told you how I had only seen the Craig ones for the longest time. Cause I mean, that first one was 2006. So I was, I want to put myself at 13 if I'm not correct. I know I was a teenager when that came out. And, um, you know, that's what I've grown up watching is that era. It's this era. And when you heard that, you're like, oh, dude, I got the whole set. And we made our infamous Bonathon, as we called it. Well, for I think four days, we watched from Doctor No all the way to I believe just the final Brosnan movie, Die Another Day. Uh, I don't think we touched Craig, so I'd seen those. We made it to no, we added Craig. I remember we made it to uh, the Living Daylights. And then we were burned the fuck out after four straight days. Uh, you came over to my place and we got like three hours of sleep and then woke up and immediately went back into bond. And it was not smart. They bled together for you, I'm sure. Uh, and then the, the next week I went over to your place and we finished it and we did the Brazen films. And, the, and at that point, it was the three Craig films up to Skyfall. Oh. Spe- Spectre hadn't come out yet. <laughs> So, yeah, that was the Bondathon. We did that early on in the uh, when it was filmgasm.com when we started the website to p- try to promote it. Didn't work too hot, but we had a fun time. Whenever I watch a Bond movie, I think about the Bondathon. And dude, every time. <laughs> and here we are, full circle, talking about Skyfall on a, on a podcast. Yeah, right. I think I remember like my mind just melting halfway through the marathon too. And like I said something and you laughed and you were, I was like, what did I just say? And you're like, dude, I don't know. <laughs> we were so <laughs> burnt out. Oh my I remember when we got to Lazenby, I was like, buckle up, you're gonna fall asleep. And then we yeah. <laughs> Is that when I had like the two forties of Dr. Pepper at one point? And then I think just so. went to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I honestly, I'm going to say, I don't remember too much about the days themselves. It was so like, just, we were on fumes from beginning to end and just, but I don't regret a damn thing. That was a, it's a good memory. No, it, it's a great memory. It got me into the franchise. I mean, I turned around afterwards and bought the set myself. Like, I know you mentioned it, that you got the Blu-ray set. I also picked up the, the Blu-ray set. So, I mean, I turned around and got it, and yeah, because of it, I'm a big fan now. But, you know, what I like about this, what we're doing with the top five is I feel like yours will be very reflective of you being a lifelong fan. Mine will be very reflective of me being a little bit newer, like coming in it later in life. Yeah, and that's cool. I mean, these films have been around for 50 plus years. 
there's people who've been lifelong fans like me, but there's also people who are discovering it for the first time through Craig. And that's great. Um, any, you know, any love for this franchise is love. My, my top five isn't necessarily a top five best Bond films, but the ones that I always go back to first. My five, five of my favorites. I love all the films, but five of my favorites. So if there's like, you know, ones I've given nines to on the, on the website that aren't in here, that's just, you know, this is, these are my five today. My five tomorrow could be completely different. Yeah. So. For me, this is, it's kind of the same thing. Like this is the five I came up with based off like how good I remember them, how much I've watched them, but there's so many good movies. Even some of the ones that people kind of hate on, I don't mind. Mine is last me. I'm kind of with you. I just, even the second time watching, I was like, God, this movie is not good. <laughs> and even, you know, I know there's like some hate towards like some of the later Roger Moore, Moore movies. So I think up to like his last two, I, I really do like a lot of the Roger Moore stuff. It took me a while to grow on, grow on his, but I do enjoy them. And Dalton's so incredibly underrated. And Brosnan, I, I love Going Eye. I like the other three. I don't love them as much as Going Eye, but I do like the other three. You know, a lot of people kind of hate on them. Those are fun. You know, I said on Casino Royale on the Filmgasm last week that my introduction to the franchise was Die Another Day. And while that may not be the best introduction to the Bond franchise, it's a fun movie that gives you, you know, the weird spy flavor that you'll get to know and love. And I, yeah, I, I love that. A lot of people hate that movie, but I, I like it. And the Brosnan films are fun and mindless and ridiculous and super 90s. Oh, yeah. So, they're very reflective of the time and like sometimes it's nice after kind of like if you marathon that franchise like we did when you get to those more fun ones it's kind of nice like it really is it's like oh, okay we're just going to turn the brain off and watch things explode in a bond movie and i'm okay with it yeah as opposed to lazenby which is two and a half hours of a australian james bond wearing a kilt trying to act like blofeld doesn't immediately recognize him they just met in japan two years ago like yeah it's different actors but it's supposed to be the same characters blofeld they explain away by having had plastic surgery but they don't say shit about bond so blofeld should be like you're that asshole who ruined my space program two years ago get him <laughs> and that never comes up that movie bugs me so much they don't do that for like they admittedly the continuity is hit and miss and bond from like the first Connery to the last Brosnan because they, they just kept getting a new actor without really any explanation. So like the continuity is always hit and miss. Like I know people like to I know being a horror fan, we love to fuck with uh horror film franchises. I know their continuity sucks, but Bond doesn't get a pass for me either. I love oh. the series overall, but his continuity is very hit and miss. And I'll get more into it again. This is gonna be more of a um Sneak preview, no time die, but they didn't really to me know continuity until they got Daniel Craig on and had a very clear vision for what they wanted to do with it. Well, I think, you know, I, I think I brought this up at Casino Royale too. Dr. No to Die Another Day is supposed to be the same man. But the Craig films flipped that on its head and brought in this like self contained story. Casino to No Time to Die is its own story with a solid arc for James Bond as a, as a human being which is weird because we've never gotten that before. I brought up, you know, Bond's vulnerability in these films and his fuck ups and his, you know, his damage. We don't, we don't see that in Connery to Brosnan. He's this unkillable, unbeatable 
super spy who bangs the hottest women on earth and always saves the world with very little collateral damage in the process. But this time we've got, you know, a man trying his best. And that's cool. But, you know, there's still a lot to love in the, you know, first 20. Oh, absolutely. There's still plenty of love in the first 20. And I mean, and like you said, like, if you're going to, like, if you're going to be that guy or that person, that person, you know, we'll keep it gender neutral. If you're going to be that person that really parks on some of the more racist or sexist elements that are obviously, like, I'm very aware of the whole yellow face that they did with Connery. Like, okay, yeah, it's there and it doesn't age well, but it's a small part of an otherwise really good movie. Yeah, I agree. You know, I don't think we should throw the whole thing out just because of one questionable decision that weirdly has no impact on the film whatsoever because the assassins, I brought this up in Casino as well, the assassins immediately know where he is and they hunt him down anyway because if you give a guy a bowl, a bowl cut and slightly narrow his eyes, people are still going to recognize him. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. So there's there's little things throughout the franchise that clearly date this thing. And, you know, Connery slapping women and just being like, you know, where are they? And just all that shit. It's, it's annoying. But I, I think you don't I get I think I remember commenting on that during Bonathon. Like, after, like, the third or fourth minute, I was like, does he keep fucking and just slapping them after? <laughs> I think I remember making that comment. And I think I had to be like, well, yeah. <laughs> kind of. There's no easy way to say that. Yeah. He's, he's kind of a brute. <laughs> But you know that's in a way, in a weird way, that's just who Sean Connery was. I mean, have you ever seen that interview where he gave with I think it was Barbara Walters or somebody where he's like, "I have no problem slapping a woman, like if she deserves it, it's it's her own fault." Like, and they're just like, "What the fuck, man?" <laughs> they're just looking at her like, "Jesus," and even he looks bothered that a woman would ask him that question. Yeah, I love that his wife defended that statement. She's like, "Yeah," it, I'm like, "What is going on in that house?" <laughs> yeah anyway <laughs> we're not here to defend sean connery as a man we're here to defend james bond as a, as a character but i do like a lot of sean connery movies and i will not back down on that stance oh no i yeah i love a lot of his movies but he also did rising sun and he loses points for that um so top five hmm? Most people say League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, but you know, yeah. I like that movie. I, I'll defend yeah. that movie to death. I know you do. Is it Are on? It, did you add it to the to the list for our upcoming show? It's in there. I'm I'm well aware I'm alone in my love for that movie, and I am willing to defend it against the horde. So yeah, it's in there. You know what? I'll keep that in mind when I come up with the schedule throughout the year because I know I put a movie on there that I'm waiting to defend. I it's do the, know what I'm talking about. Oh yeah. Well, League is the movie that Connery like hated so much the experience forced him to retire because he's like i can't handle this shit anymore fuck everybody and he left went to the bahamas and died there so yeah but you know i think the movie itself is entertaining neat and a cool idea and i just i i've been watching it since i was a kid and i've got nothing but love for it I'm, I'm the same way about van helsing which i know a lot of people hate as well for the same reasons so it's gonna be great having those on the upcoming show that I still won't name. Yeah, gonna get yeah, gonna get all up in there. <coughs> um, so top five Bond films, uh, reflective of who, what we think are some of the best adventures James Bond has had over the 
course of 50 plus years. Uh, why don't you start us off? All right. Uh, as I mentioned before we recorded, I'm going to start my honorable mentions real quick. And then I'll get my five. I actually only have two. One that may not surprise you, it just barely, I mean, barely did not get into my top five. And the one that might, but I do actually really like this one. Uh, the first one's Dr. No. Hmm. It barely did not make the top five. I mean, Razor Thin. Uh, the other one was actually Live and Let Die. Uh, Roger Moore's debut. I actually think that's his best one. I really do enjoy the hell out of that movie. It, I mean, yeah, like we talked about, it it's, can be dated at times. It can be corny, but it did a good job of introducing a new take on this character. So I enjoyed, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Yeah. Live and Let Die is underrated. I, I like that movie a lot. I think the, the villain's a bit ridiculous. You know, Mr. Big just yelling at Bond about solitaire. Did you mess with that? Like that's, 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 that's hard to, hard to su- support there, <laughs> but it's a, yeah. it's a fun movie. We got a taste of what Roger Moore's era was going to be. And I like watching that. Uh, Dr. Yeah. No, also great place. To, you know, it's the beginning of this franchise. They weren't quite sure what kind of character Bond was going to be. Was he going to be cheesy? Was he going to be cold blooded? Was he going to be a womanizer? Was he going to be flawed? And they kind of did everything. Mm-hmm. And I think through the successive films, Bond had to kind of find his way. And I don't think he really found it until Goldfinger. A lot of people say that's the film where Bond became Bond. Yeah, and that's why I put Dr. No on honor mentions when I was looking. I was like, it's it's a great movie. It's a great debut of Connery's bond of this character to audiences. Yeah. But like you said, yeah, this is a rare case where I do think the first three films in this series build and get better. And that's why I was like, let me put on my honor mentions because it is good, but it got bested. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I have two honorable mentions of my own. I might as well get out of the way here. Um, the man with the golden gun, uh, James Bond versus Christopher Lee. How do you not love that? I think that yeah. movie gets a lot of undue hate. I think the theme song is stupid, but you know what? After that, you've got one of the best, most badass Bond villains in history and one of the most insane stunts in movie history. Remember the loop-de-loop car stunt? Yeah, 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 yeah. Unreal. Uh, so I'll defend that one for sure. Oh, dude, I'll defend it with you. Christopher Lee is a bad guy. You got me sold. Yeah. My, yeah, what is it? My whole clip against your one bullet? I only need one. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> I believe that. <laughs> um, and then my other... Hmm? Sorry, I was like, there's a lot of the Roger Moore ones that they kind of like, people hate on them. Like, these are fun movies. I don't understand why people hate this. I do, I think, was this introduction? Fucking J.J. Pepper? <laughs> No, that was Live and Let Die, but he was on vacation in Golden Gun and just happened to run into Bond in Japan. Right, that was always like the one thing that bugged me. I don't know why. I hated that character. I remember you give me so much shit when we watched that movie. Sheriff J.W. Pepper. Yeah, oh, J.W., yeah. You can't, put a, you can't put a Bond film in the American South and not introduce a fat, sweaty Southern sheriff. It's going to happen. <laughs> forgot all about that motherfucker <laughs> i Ugh. did he's burned in my my mind oh yeah that's ugh. uh and my other honorable mention you might be surprised didn't make my top five it was so close diamonds are forever really i know how much you like that one i do love that movie it's you know one of the few times we've had a uh direct sequel 
because at the end of Honor Majesty's Secret Service, Bond's wife, Tracy, is killed by Blofeld. And at the beginning of Diamonds Are Forever, Bond is hunting Blofeld for revenge. And then gets it, seems to immediately get over his wife <laughs> and like just goes to Vegas to help find a, you know, stop a diamond smuggling ring, which is great. But the reason that I love that movie is two of my, are two of my favorite Bond villains of all time. First off, you've got Charles Gray's incredible performance as Blofeld. He's my favorite one to date. And then you've got Mr. Wint and Mr. Kid, the two insanely creepy hitmen who work for Blofeld, played by uh, Bruce Glover and Putter Smith. They are so scary. Their music is, is creepy. They are so successful in the way they kill in really sadistic ways with scorpions and bombs and shit. Like, they're weird. And they really made that movie memorable for me. And uh, it just barely made it. The other five, I, the five I picked, to me, all bring something even more important to the role. I mean, to the, to the stage. And uh, I just, I wanted to shout it out because I do love that movie. Yeah, that's how I kind of have my own mention. I was like, these are the five that really, like, to me, were just on a level of already great. But these were ones that were, they were close because I really do enjoy them a lot. Oh, yeah. So what's your number five? My number five is the debut of Pierce Brosnan as 007 GoldenEye. I think this is, like, I know, again, kind of like I was talking with, um, Roger Moore. I think a lot of the sequels after this could undo hate. I think they're mindless fun. I know that's not what Strange on is supposed to be, but at that point in the in the series, it was a kind of refreshing, honestly. <laughs> um, but this one, I think it just knows it. Like it's a great debut of Brosnan's take on the character. It has you know one of the more memorable Bond female villains and Famke Chance and Xenia on the top for you know good naming there. And, you know, even Sean Bean pop, pops into this one, which is always nice. Um, it is, you know, we talk about dated. It's incredibly dated in its plot of <laughs> what it is, but it's uh, it's so entertaining. This is such an entertaining Bond movie. Well, I might as well get it out of the way right now. My number five is also Goldeneye. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, after License to Kill, there was a bit of a slump. In the Bond franchise, it took uh, six six years, I believe, uh, before the Bond franchise was rejuvenated by Martin Campbell, who would also later do the same thing with Casino Royale. And you've got Pierce Brosnan, who just looks the part of a suave, debonair British agent. And Goldeneye, like you said, is so entertaining. It brings the, the charm and the kind of the, you know, the, the smarm almost back to bond and mm. gives you a really cool adventure. That's takes place right in the middle of the cold war. Perfect. And Sean Bean as a disgraced double O agent who's out for vengeance. Are you kidding me? <laughs> like, yes. You know, this is one of the few times we actually see another double O and of course, I think it works. Uh, Famke Jansen is ridiculous as Zenya on the top of the character, like, you know, murders, sweaty men with her legs are you kidding me i'll take it um, not the worst way to go because i'll i'll say it she was hot yeah she was hot uh <laughs> yeah i think golden eyes fun it's a great introduction uh for the past like for the first 20 if you're going to show somebody the bond films out of order i would start with golden eye 
I yeah. think it sets a good tone. I think it's fun. It's ridiculous. And uh, it's an all-around great movie. I think, you know, Brosnan's sequels got progressively dumber, but GoldenEye was a hell of a place to start. I think Tina Turner's song is flawless, one of my favorite Bond themes. And uh, yeah, it rocks. Yeah, it's great. Even like uh, that tank sequence is so awesome. Yeah. Like the scene, I'm like, oh my God. The opening where Bond like gets in the plane as it's falling off the cliff and flies it away from the Russian base. I always... I'm always really happy. Like I'm always smiling during that scene. Yeah, like, Bond, oh. straight up. The action, this one's like out of this world, good and golden eye. And the I love the line like when you know Bond and Alec are fighting on top of the satellite, and Bond grab you know Alec falls and Bond grabs his leg, and Alec knows he's gonna die, and he tells Bond you know for England, James, and Bond looks him right in the eyes, and goes no for me, and drops him, like <sighs> cold but. So badass. Yeah. Nothing but love for Goldeneye. Cool. I'm glad I think it's cool we both have that at number five. Yeah, that's wasn't expecting that outcome. <laughs> What's your uh, number four? All right. My number four. Now, as I mentioned earlier, Dr. No is good, but they perfected with the next two movies. So with that said, number four is from Russia with Love. <laughs> nice. This movie, it it really laid the groundwork for a lot of elements that were to continue in James Bond. I think, I'm, if I recall, they took the theme song a little more seriously in this installment than they did Dr. No, which kind of kickstarted what we would get in each subsequent movie. It felt like Sean Connery was more confident in his character and what how he wanted to portray Bond. It felt like they were more confident how they wanted to portray Bond, what they wanted this to be. And it's it's just a, it's such an entertaining movie. It's it's like the sequel that does what it was supposed to do. It builds off what worked and just hones in on that and gives you so much more. Yeah, I agree with everything you're saying. And I'm gonna say a little bit more later. <laughs> yeah, from Russia with Love, such a great movie. You ever played a game um on PlayStation 2? No, the only uh James Bond game I played was actually GoldenEye. I've never played gold. I've heard that's like such a great game. I've never played it. I had a I had a buddy that had a copy. So I, I was able to play it. Yeah. For Marsha with Love was cool because Sean Connery came back to voice the character for the game. It was such a big deal. I mean, he sounds like 85, 90 year old Sean Connery playing 30 <laughs> year old James Bonds. So it was a little weird, but still it's like it's really fun. You play through the whole game. There's tons of Easter eggs. Um, I had this one game on PS2. It was such a cool idea. It was called GoldenEye Rogue Agent. And uh, you played as the MI6 agent who fucked up and got Bond killed. You're, you get fired, obviously. And Oric Goldfinger comes to you and wants to recruit you to help him go to war with Dr. No. It's so cool. Uh, Christopher Lee plays Scaramanga, who's like Goldfinger's weapons guy. It's it's so cool. It was like so all the elements of all the Bond films like brought together. There's a Zoran Industries blimp just flying around. Like it's so fun. It was made for Bond fans. It's one of the coolest games we've ever played. Yeah, I've never played that. I haven't heard of that. Okay. Yeah, it's bitching. I'll yeah, it's really cool. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> um yeah, there's a lot of Bond video games that were made and uh, like you know, Agent Under Fire and Nightfire, everything or nothing bloodstone like most of them are pretty good 
Um, my number four is Timothy Dalton's second adventure, License to Kill, 1989. Uh, maybe the most underrated Bond film ever made. It's It features James Bond uh, going rogue after a Colombian drug lord maims Felix Leiter and kills his wife. Bond is disavowed by MI6. His license to kill is revoked, but he hunts this motherfucker down and makes him pay. And we've never seen a James Bond this unhinged before. You know, he really like is brutal. He's unforgiving. He's cold. And audiences were not ready for that. <laughs> That's why this film kind of got, didn't do so hot. Dalton didn't get to do a third movie. And it just kind of got left in the wind. But I think it's a flawless adventure and one of the coolest Bond films we ever got. And I will constantly defend this movie. Oh, I'm, I'm with, I remember when we were watching the Bonthon, you gave me that one. And you're like, hey, if you really don't like this one, but it's just like, it was just ahead of its time. And there's very put it. And you're right. It's very much a, it felt like a Craig film. They just made it almost 20 years too early. Yeah, exactly. Um, and people just weren't ready. And I'm with you. I really, really liked it. I mean, it could be because we're younger. We didn't watch these as they came out. But when you're marathoning them, like, yeah, these changes of pace are nice. That's why I enjoy the the dumb but fun Brosnan sequels, all this darker turn with Dalton, like because it was something different. And Dalton was a good Bond. I think he's one. He was one of the best ones, honestly. Me too. I just I don't get why you know people didn't gravitate towards him. I think you know he was darker than more, but light like lighter than Craig. He had this kind of like middle ground thing, but also he could become the ruthless monster when he needed to be. And I, I never saw that with Moore or Brosnan. They were too, you know, sweet. Yeah. Well, I'm always, as much as I like Goldeneye, I can fully admit that Brosnan had the small part down, but I didn't, he didn't always have the, you know, the badass part down, in my opinion. He had his I, moment. I agree. Um, no, but I'm, and yeah, I'm with you. I think Dalton, I put him, if I were to rank it, I'd probably actually probably put him behind It'd be like Carney, Craig, and then Dalton, in my opinion. Because, um, yeah, he had it all, and he brought in the two movies, and especially this one. He he took a much darker script and ran with it and nailed it completely. I'm I'm with you. I'll defend this one. It's a fun, different Bond film Yeah, that could have gotten us more Dalton, but instead we got actually no more Dalton. I hold fast to the idea that if A View to a Kill had been Dalton's first movie instead of Moore's last movie – it would have been much more well-received, and I think Dalton's run would have gotten to be a bit longer. Yeah. I think they really I think they really screwed up when they kept more for so long. Yeah. Um, also, License to Kill, uh, one of Benicio Del Toro's first movies. He plays the uh, psycho uh, assistant to Sanchez, a guy named Dario. And he is, uh, yeah, real, real scumbag. Also, Wayne Newton as a evangelist. So, like, how do you not love that? Bless your heart. I love when Bond just randomly, they get celebrities that just want to be in it to cameo. Yeah, I love that, you know, you, you see, like, actors who weren't quite anybody yet, but also, like, big names like Christopher Walken, who just wanted to be a Bond villain. It's cool. I love that. Yeah, uh, It's a global franchise, you know. It hops all over the world. Fans are all over the world love it. Great. Uh, I believe we're on your three. Yes. So can actually continuing that trend of the first three getting better for me, number three is the one that truly solidified 
a franchise going forward, and that would be Goldfinger. <laughs> Again, like I kind of I know I've been saying it, but like I said, they they actually did what was almost rarely done in trilogies, and they made an even better third film that solidified everything not just like okay this aspect solidified for the character or this aspect solidified for everything moving forward for this franchise goes off a golden uh gold finger and you know minus a whole scene with the uh, pussy galore not dating so well besides that <laughs> very fun adventure you can see that uh connery is definitely at his most comfort comfortable i think from this point onward in the character it's an insanely fun movie and like i said it just it really became the template for bond films going forward and well i think that right from the get-go this movie tells you what it's going to be like when bond is at the miami hotel and he's getting a massage from dink and lighter comes up and is like can we talk business and bond says gotta go man talk Slaps stink on the ass and walks away. Right from there, you're like, okay, this is this kind of movie. All right. And then you got a female lead named Pussy Galore. Are you fucking kidding me? Who's a lesbian, but he forces himself on her. Yep. And all of a sudden she's fine and dandy. Yeah, for those of you who haven't seen it, uh, I I guess trigger warning for more sensitive viewers out there. It that scene does not age well. I will I will admit that. Well, as Carly Simon once said, nobody does it better. <laughs> that's that's what she was talking about. No one dicks like James Bond, clearly. <laughs> like he changes who you are fundamentally as a person. <laughs> that's kind of an amazing superpower. <laughs> he can get anyone he truly wants. <laughs> Good God. Um, Goldfinger, another one I will be talking about a bit later. Um, my number three is one that you've already brought up from Russia with love. A, like you said, a solid continuation build up, building upon the foundation that Dr. No established, bringing more of specter into this. Dr. No is a specter agent. We get a brief little intro on that. And now we meet in shadow specters. Number one, we don't learn who he is yet, but they want revenge on bond for killing Dr. No. And so they established this elaborate plan to get a decoding machine and then have Robert Shaw fuck up Bond. Seemed too complicated. Just send just send Grant to take care of this now, but whatever. Um, Any assassin you have, but we need yeah. a movie, so. <laughs> but I just, for me, the reason this is here is I love the back and forth between Sean Connery and Robert Shaw. Donald Grant is one of my favorite Bond villains because he's kind of, he's the specter James Bond. Like they're, they're equals almost. And you feel that the whole time he's refined and cultured too. And the only reason he slips up or like bond notices that he's not who he says he is, is because he orders red wine with fish. And I love that. It's like no Oxford man would ever do that. (laughs) How dare you? (laughs) Yeah. But this was also Q's introduction to the franchise. We meet him for the first time, Desmond Llewellyn, who would continue to play Q all the way up till 1999 when he died in a car accident. Uh, this is a movie that really sets kind of the tone of the franchise. Goldfinger built, like, you know, continued the, the growth, but from Russia with love is one that really like, you can kind of see if you want to skip Dr. No, honestly, you could, 
I love it, but you could skip it and start with From Russia with Love. Well, and you like you're saying, you see a lot of what they would do with the franchise in From Russia with Love. Yes. And the only reason I say like Goldfinger's above is because it just solidified all that was built up there and said, boom, okay, here it is, locked in. Exactly. And I have a lot of fond memories of watching From Russia with Love with my family. That was a it's a favorite of my family's. And I had the game, so I played the game and it's just a blast, this movie. Yeah. It, I'm t- like, I would say, like, you kind of mentioned, like, you want to get someone into it, right? Probably something on something like Go Night. If someone's, like, dedicated to starting from the beginning, you couldn't go wrong showing these first three films. Start showing yeah. Dr. No, From Rush for Love and Goldfinger. Yeah, it's a solid run for Connery and establishes him as kind of the definitive James Bond. Yes. And, you know, we love Thunderball and You Only Live Twice and Diamonds Are Forever, but these three films are something special. If there had been no Bond films past Goldfinger, this would be considered one of the greatest trilogies in film history. Oh, yeah. yeah, Without a doubt. And, yeah, like I said, like the other three did are fun, but I think they do kind of unfortunately sometimes fall to a lot of other franchises where, like, your level of entertainment will definitely vary with those three. Those yeah. leaders. <laughs> I agree. Cool. What is your number two? All right. So this is where it really reflects my more late edition. My number two is a narrow debut. This time of one of our generation, Daniel Craig, 2006's Casino Royale. Very nice. This one and the one I will mention, my number one, were tough to place where they are because, again, kind of like with Goal and I, right? This was a solid introduction to not just a actor taking over this character, but a new take on James Bond himself, a new fresh restart. And it worked so well doing that. Daniel Craig really showed um, how he would become a Bond of this generation, how he would define the character in this movie. Um, the whole p- poker thing, like that should have been boring as shit to watch in a movie. And it's one of the most exciting plot lines I've witnessed. It's truly something special to behold. And I mean, Mads Mickelson as the villain. Are you kidding me? That guy is one of my favorite, most underrated actors. Like he killed it as the villain. And, um, you know, Vesper Lynn is to me, one of the better handled Bond girls they've ever had in this franchise. Uh, say what you will about Eva Green. I don't know how people feel about her, but Vesper Lynn herself as a character is definitely one of the most better handled um, Bond goals, in my opinion. And that actually felt somewhat equal to Bond. Like she could actually match him on a lot of stuff. And this, this is just a, such an entertaining movie. I, I've gone back to this one quite a bit. Well, there's a whole episode of the Film Guys and Podcast about how much I love Casino Royale. So I'll go ahead and just you know, let that speak for itself, but well picked. Um, my number two is also a film that's on your list. Goldfinger. Connery's, you know, definitive movie with all the rape and misogyny you could ask for. Uh, yeah, it's unfortunate, but if we could just push that to the side for a second here. (laughs) Excise that part. We've if got helps, he does get a laser going straight to his dick, but towards the end of the movie. No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. 
one of the greatest, you know, most famous quotes of the franchise. Just Goldfinger's like, I don't need you. And stop trying to lie your way out of this. You're going to get lasered. Dick first, Bond. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) the character of Oric Goldfinger is so simple. Rich businessman, loves gold, wants more of it. End of story. (laughs) That's the whole, that's the whole guy. And I love the, the, the golf scene where Bond is trying to, you know, learn about Goldfinger and he distracts him with the bar of gold and he misses his putt. I love that. Odd job, you know, with the hat. Fucking awesome. The finale at Fort Knox with the bomb and the military and the battle for, for America's gold supply. It's corny. It's on paper. It sounds stupid. You know, rich businessman launches a nuke inside Fort Knox. So his gold is worth more. Like, all right, but it's executed so perfectly that you get drawn in immediately. The song by Shirley Bassey, the most iconic Bond theme of all time. And I mean, right there, you're like, this is something special. We're not just watching spy movies anymore. We are watching James Bond movies. And that's all there is to it. Goldfinger gave that to us. And you love it or hate it, you got to respect what it gave to the franchise. Yeah, it like you said, it, it was no longer a spy franchise. It's this is the James Bond franchise. Yeah, there was a level of prestige that now came with this. Like, it's a it's its own franchise in a in a genre. Beautiful. Yeah, Goldfinger's a favorite. I I love it. Um, he's got its problems, but they all every movie has some problems. Uh, we know we're not going to just shut down every film ever made just because it's you know it's dated or fucked up. Yeah, you gotta, it, you gotta you know talk about that shit. Yeah, just have that talk. Like, look, in real life, you're not going to convince a lesbian to sleep with you. It's not going to happen. Yeah. And it's crazy to suggest that. And also, you're never going to meet a woman whose birth name is Pussy Galore. That's never going to happen unless and they if, had some fucked up parents. And if you do, text me because I need to know this info immediately. This is my new friend, Pussy. Yeah, that's never going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That's so stupid. Um, so, yeah, Goldfinger number two. What you got? So my number one is the film we are talking about today. My honestly, my all-time favorite Bond film, my all-time favorite Craig film. I think nothing has been better than this film, in my opinion, and that is Skyfall. I I adore this movie. It it did such a great job of telling a personal Bond story. So that they have actually done a lot with the Craig era that I think they've done really well. But telling a personal story while starting to introduce a lot of the classic Bond elements into this. Uh, and it, I, I don't want to say too much because we're talking about it for the episode, but I just, yeah, this film is just outstanding. It is beyond, like I said, with the show in the first three and going on, this is actually one that if someone wanted to get into it, it'd be like, check out this Craig Bond film. Yeah, you're not going to get any arguments from me. Skyfall is badass. And a great entry in the entire franchise. Uh, redeemed Craig after Quantum kind of, you know, put people to sleep. Uh, Skyfall sees, as we're going to talk about later, a broken, battle-weary James Bond who's been through the ringer and isn't quite sure if he is the same man who can pull the trigger like he used to. And we've never seen that before. And I, I like that. This whole movie is about Bond basically coming to terms with 
you know, his own faults and his own past. It's great. Yeah, um, it does it on such like a personal level, but also that level of like the broader story of like, do we need people like this in a modern society? In a modern, you know, these types of people, this type of job still necessary. So it's yeah. not just even like, you know, obviously it's very much about him personally, but it tackles it on that bigger scale. And neither one um, favors the other so perfectly well balanced and handled throughout the entire movie. Well, I love, you know, M's speech to the assembly where she they basically tell her like, you're obsolete. And she's like, am I? Like, you don't know how to how this is done. You don't know how battles are waged these days. It's all in the shadows. We don't know who the enemy is. We have to figure it out as we go along. And you need people like us who are willing to pull the trigger and keep you safe. It's a great way to, you know, make the franchise, keep it relevant. And yeah, I mean, we see, you know, throughout the franchise, we see Bond fighting, you know, larger than life, singular villains, and then, you know, Cold War terrorism and post-Cold War terrorism, and then, you know, post-9-11 terrorism. And you have to consistently believe that James Bond would be a man that MI6 would send on a mission like this. And you have to make the mission believable, especially now when you've got like competing franchises like Jason Bourne and Jack Ryan and all that shit. Yeah. And I like the question she asked that her at that being when she, I think she begins it or ends it with this question. She goes, do you feel safe minister? And I'm like, Oh yeah. I'm taking them to task, you know, to hell with dignity. I'll leave when the job's done. It's great. Judy Nench might be the best M for that, for this movie alone. I'll, I'll get more into like, because I fucking love her in this movie so much. <laughs> uh, fantastic. Uh, not surprised. Yeah, Skyfall barely, barely missed my top five. Um, but my number one is a predictable Craig film. It's Casino Royale. I, I that movie's my favorite Bond film. It's hard. I've I've tried to convince myself it's Goldfinger, but after this most recent watch, I'm like, this movie's solid gold. <laughs> I adore it. And it, like you said, it's the perfect intro to Craig. It's a perfect rejuvenation of the franchise. And it's really just so tense the whole damn time. It's so, it's a, you know, it's a stick of dynamite about to go off the entire movie until at the end when it finally explodes. And it's, you know, it's long, but it doesn't feel it. You get drawn into the poker scenes, to the action set pieces, to the fantastic character development, the performances. Like you said, Matt Mickelson is Lashif. Such a fantastic villain, underrated actor. I love him to death. And it's just such a great ride. It's the one I, I go back to the most. I've seen Casino Royale more than I've seen any of the Bond films. And that's not going to change. I might watch it again next week just for kicks. It's that good. Yeah, um, I, <laughs> dude, I'm telling you, it was so hard to decide between, like, you know, Skyfall and Casino Royale. For one, I was like, I was like, I'm going to say treating myself to go Skyfall, but I... God, this one's so, so, so good. <laughs> yeah, it's tough. There's so many great ones. This could, you know, like I said, I watched, you know, a couple more old ones. Suddenly my list changes for the week. It's it's constantly evolving and constantly changing because this is such a cool franchise with so much to offer. And that's cool. Not a lot of, you know, very few franchises beyond like Bond and the MCU make it to 25 movies. Yeah. Well, and I think, and what I mentioned like earlier, right, with when we were talking about like, you know, data tropes, and again, this can be by the MCU, I think it's their ability, their willingness, it's the better word, their willingness to change. Yes. You know, Bond, like I said, it changed with the times. Yeah, there are obviously, you know, still some issues here and there, but for the most part, 
they try to change with the times of what was acceptable. Just like the MCU started to adapt and change and let filmmakers have a little bit more creative, their creativity flat, you know, showing the movies and that has kept them going, kept their movies a lot more financially successful, fun, all that good stuff. So I think that's like the biggest thing to me that has kept this franchise going is that they are willing to change. They're willing to adapt. They're willing to think outside the box when it comes to who they want for Bond and what that actor can bring to the table. Yeah, well said. I agree. This franchise will never end because it's able to reflect any time period it needs to serve. And I like that. You know, James Bond is, you know, an iconic character that anyone can really sink their teeth into and change if they want to, you know. Sean Connery's Bond and Craig's Bond are vastly different characters, but they're still James Bond. It's still, the fundamentals are still in there. Martinis, girls, and guns, as Cheryl Crow once sang. It's, yeah, nothing but love. Yeah, and because of you've because of that change, because you've had different actors take it, it can be a generational thing, you know, like you can have someone like, you know, myself, like let's say when I have kids, like Mary and I have kids, I can show them the bonds I like, and then if they like enough, they can go back and pick their favorite bond, because it may not be Craig, I'm, they might like Connor, or they might like more, you know what I mean, or God bless, they like the one Lazenby movie. <laughs> you know, they'll because of that, they can find the one that they like, they connect to, and that really resonates with them. Yeah, exactly. Cool. So what? let's recap. What was your five? My five was uh, number five, GoldenEye. Number four was From Russia With Love. Number three was Goldfinger. Number two was Casino Royale. Number one, the subject of today's discussion, Skyfall. Nice. My five was number five, GoldenEye. Number four, License to Kill. Number three, From Russia With Love. Number two, Goldfinger. Number one, Casino Royale. So we had four of the same films with one difference, just in different spots. That, that's cool. I think that shows that there are, you know, favorites in the franchise. Like there, you know, there's some that are better than others. And I think we picked them. <laughs> yeah, I was actually surprised. I thought for sure you'd have like a different list for me. because I was like, well, I'm newer, so I, I know I'm gonna go, what I'm going with. <laughs> I wanted to have a healthy mix. I wanted to include some, you know, some movies that I didn't think were going to get talked about. I didn't think you'd have Goldeneye. So that's cool. And I knew you wouldn't have license to kill, but you know, I wanted to, I wanted to bring Dalton into the conversation. Somebody had to. Yeah. When I was writing the top five, he crossed my mind. I was like, do I want to put Dawn? And I was like, God, that's tough. Cause I do really like both of his movies, living daylights and license. I think they're both great fucking movies. Yeah. So his was tough because I do like his and I do think his his run is incredibly underrated. Yeah, straight up. Cool. That was fun. Top five Bond films. Always love doing these top fives. Uh, narrowing it down to five really makes you think. Uh, so now let's talk about some individuals, people involved in production who have been touched by the Academy Awards, starting with our director, Sam Mendez. Uh, he's the guy behind Skyfall and Spectre. Uh, very good uh, eye for the franchise. I thought he did a wonderful job. He won his Oscar uh, 1999 Best Director American Beauty, was nominated in 2019 for Best Original Screenplay, Best Director, and Best Picture for 1917. Uh, he's an incredible filmmaker. I've, everything I've seen from him, I have loved. Sam Mendes, what a, what a rock star. Yeah, I've, uh, I've actually seen his movies. I'm not an Oscar person I missed. 
Um, I actually, I yeah, I really like his Bond films. I none. I really fell in love with 1917 when I saw it. it I can't help it. At first, I was like, this is probably gonna be some really artsy war film because the last time I got into like a war film, they had like a lot of critical acclaim. It was Dunkirk, and I've made it quite known that I personally thought that was incredibly overrated. But I really fell in love with 1917. That movie was awesome. Yeah. 1917 was a game changer. It was so cool how he was committed to like cinematography was the best part. And it's the same cinematographer as Skyfall. We're going to talk about him in a minute here. Um, but yeah, one, you know, making it look like one continuous take is incredibly difficult. Very few filmmakers have pulled that off. And Mendez, I can't believe he lost director, frankly. I mean, I love Bong Joon-ho too, but this movie, my God. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, 1917 is an incredible film. I hope one day I get to talk about it on Oscar Sunday. Uh, I would love to do that. Um, Mendez is also the director of another film I've been dying to talk about on this show, Road to Perdition. Oh, I've seen that recently. Yeah, isn't that great? Yeah, someone, I've got two other, like, dude, you gotta watch it. And I watched it, and I was like, oh my God, this is a great movie. Yeah. Daniel Craig and Paul Newman as Irish gangsters. Tom Hanks as a hitman that is wronged by them. Jude Law as another hitman who's after him. Dear God. <laughs> this movie's awesome. Yeah, it needs to be talked about more. I, I was impressed. I was like, why have I not seen this? This movie is amazing. I think, you know, it's because it's based on a graphic novel. I think that gives it some stigma in the, in the awards zone. I fucking hate that it does, but I do think that, you know, sets it back, which blows because it's an incredible yeah. gangster film. <clears throat> yeah, probably. Um. That. I know how they are with uh, their comic book movies. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, to win Best Director for your debut with American Beauty, that's that's impressive. Uh, we talked about that film a while back on a Best Picture Showdown where we kind of talked about, you know, Kevin Spacey and opened that can of worms. Very interesting. Very fun episode. I got to say it was good to finally unpack all that shit. But yeah, Sam Mendes put his mark on Skyfall and Spectre did a great job. Yeah. Next up, screenwriter John Logan, who shares screenwriting credit on Skyfall with a bunch of people. Um, he was nominated. We talked about him in the Rango episode. He was nominated for screenplay for Gladiator in 2000, The Aviator in 2004, and Hugo in 2011. And uh, yeah, I think this Skyfall, I think, is one of the most smartly written Bond films. Uh, definitely toys with the character in a way that no other movie ever has. And also gives, you know, meteor substantial roles to M and Q and Moneypenny, which is great. They've been pretty much background characters for the entire franchise. And it's nice to see them actually be a part of the action. Yeah, I think he, not only that, to me, I think another thing I noticed when I watched it is that he really was good with writing the, um, the, the dialogue between them, like the interplay between all the characters, like how Bond... You know, that whole scene when Bond is first meeting this new Q and how that scene goes and he's yeah. sizing him up and then you can see that smile and, you know, he likes him. You know, he's really good at doing that in this movie. I mean, there's these character interactions that you don't, I didn't realize Bond always a big, like a big part of the Bond franchise, but they feel like they really worked on that in this, in this one. And it shows because I really liked how you were, their interactions with each other. Yeah, me too. Like I said, I think the character development in this film or well, in the Craig era really is just 
bonkers. I love it. Uh, John Logan, some of his other films, uh, Rango, of course, uh, Sweeney Todd, The Last Samurai, The Time Machine, Star Trek Nemesis, Any Given Sunday, uh, Alien Covenant, and uh, he created Penny Dreadful. So hell of a run, this guy, John Logan. Yeah, he's doing good for himself, to say the least. Yes, indeed. Uh, next up. I have questions from him on that Alien Covenant script, though. I think Ridley Scott probably uh, weared him down a bit. You know, let's be honest. Whose movie is this? That's <laughs> true. Look, I'll say this. I know I kind of may have made my comments on the show on several shows in time with this. Do I like Alien Covenant better than Prometheus? Yes, I do. Do I still think it's not exactly the greatest alien film given us? Also, yes. Did John Logan sit down and write a scene where Walter and David hold a flute together and David tells him, I'll do the fingering? Because if so, I think one of those Oscar nominations should be revoked. I don't know about you, but I got like the biggest awkward laugh in the theater when I saw that movie. How cool would it be if, just a tangent here, if the Oscars, like you got nominated, you know, you didn't win, whatever, you're still Academy Award nominee, blah, blah, blah. But if you wrote a truly shit movie, they take one of those nominations away. Like every time you make a piece of shit, you lose an accolade. I think there would be a lot better, a lot more better movies in Hollywood if that happened. Yeah, I'd say Ridley Scott would be kind of screwed with some of his later efforts. Dude, Coppola would have been so like, I mean, after like The Godfather 1, 2 and Apocalypse Now, it's just shit for 30 years. Like, really? Anyway, um, performers. Let's start with Judy Dench. One of the most respected thespians, Dame Judy Dench, uh, nominated 1997 Mrs. Brown, won Shakespeare in Love 1998, nominated Chocolat 2000, nominated Iris 2001, nominated Mrs. Henderson Presents 2005, nominated Notes on a Scandal 2006, and nominated Philomena 2013. She's played M since Goldeneye, and uh, Skyfall was her final role as M not counting a brief cameo inspector. And she is one of the best to ever play this character. Um, as I've said, you know, Bernard Lee, Robert Brown, you see him at the beginning of the movie, Bond gets his mission and that's it. You don't see him again, maybe briefly at the end, but Judy Dench and, and Bond have this very special connection, kind of a mother son thing that really worked for the Craig era. And I'm so glad they made, they kept her around after Brosnan, after the Brosnan reboot. Um, yeah, I think she's fantastic. She's everything I've seen her in. She's been lights out. Uh, Philomena especially made me cry. That movie was very special. I haven't seen that one, but what I have seen her in, I've always liked her. And she's one of those actors that she just commands the screen the moment she's on it. She just has that that gravitas, that performance when she does something. Yeah, and yeah, I think she was. I w- I'm like you. I'm glad they kept her when they decided. When when she first came on with Brosnan and then decided to do with review with Craig, I'm glad she was retained because I thought she was one of the best M's. They're actually the best M in the entire franchise, and she's a lights out in this installment to me. Like she's giving it her all, and yeah, I like her a lot as in She's the source of one of my favorite throwaway jokes in a movie ever. It's um in Tropic Thunder 
uh, when they're all walking into the uh, bungalow to hear Les Grossman talk to the crew for the first time. Bill Hader just casually mentions, you only notice this with subtitles. He says, can you keep a secret? A camera truck at London just plowed into Judy Dench. Trust me, he's got bigger problems. <laughs> so out of the blue, it's barely, it's barely noticeable if you don't have subtitles on, but it's such a great little line. <laughs> God, I love that movie. Me too. Oh, what a classic. Uh, moving on, Javier Bardem. One of the smokiest motherfuckers in Hollywood. That man. Um, and I'm straight. So that's that's something special. This guy, my God, he's an incredible actor. He's a handsome motherfucker. And he is such an unsettling Bond villain. Uh, Silva, which we'll talk more about him, obviously, as we go along. But one of the best uh, foils for Bond, I think. Um. His Oscar resume, nominated in 2000, Before Night Falls, winning 2007, No Country for Old Men, nominated 2010 for Beautiful. And uh, yeah, uh, Anton Chigurh, well-deserved Oscar. God, he's fucking creepy in that movie. That whole gas station scene with the coin, these heads tells, and I'm like, oh my God. I need to know what I'm, what I'm set to win everything. Like what you you're gonna win everything. Call it like, oh my god, yeah. He's he's like the you know a fucking Terminator, just unbelievable, scary. I'm so glad he won for that. Yeah, um, he was awesome. Um, also, just so you know, you probably have to fight Penelope Penelope Cruz if you ever decide to get with Javier Bardem, my friend. And while you do that, I'm just gonna salivate over Penelope Cruz because she is smoking. I would not. I'd, I'd talk to both of them about an opportunity that I don't, I think we'd all enjoy. <laughs> they are the, they are the most gorgeous couple in Hollywood. Seriously. God damn. Those are two beautiful people. I, yeah. Spain knows how to make them. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> oh, anyway. <laughs> yeah. Clearly I love Javier Bardem in more ways than one. Really? Uh, Spain fucked up on me. I'm half Spaniard. They fucked up on me. <laughs> yeah, I'm half Peruvian, and I I don't look like Javier Bardem. I I, I look exactly like you'd think. <laughs> uh, moving on, Ray Fiennes, uh, an actor we talked about when we did an um, Austin and I did an episode on In Bruges, which was a blast. Uh, Ray Fiennes does not play a cunt in this movie. He plays Gareth Mallory. Uh, some government job title who ends up becoming the new M after he learns exactly what Judy Dench is capable of and what the double O pro- program is necessary for. I like that. His arc is one of my favorites in the movie. Um, Rafe was nominated for 1993's Schindler's List. And then again in 96 for the English patient uh, as yet to be nominated again. I think you should have gotten some for the grand Budapest hotel. And dare I say it, Best Supporting Actor, 2005, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. <laughs> How dare you add Harry Potter, Harry Potter to the Oscars? <laughs> Most of them have nominations. I'm not being crazy. No. Yeah, I, know. <laughs> I think his performance as Voldemort is one of the greatest movie villain performances oh, of all dude, time. He, he's great as Voldemort. I'm with him that he sure got nominated for Grand Peter Biss because he he's so funny in that movie. I love him in that movie. <laughs> um, and I think a good reason his arc works so well in 
Skyfall is because he is so good in the role. Like, I like him a lot, and I actually do like him a lot as him. I think if they picked a, I think they picked well with them and having someone succeed Judy Dench. Yeah. So I think he just completely owns it. I love the interplay whenever you can tell Bond gets annoyed with them in the later sequels and he calls him Mallory. He doesn't call him MM anymore. That's yeah. how you know when he's like annoyed with them. <laughs> there's a great bit. And I know we're, we promise not to talk too much about this, but there's a moment in no time to die when he tells M like, has your desk gotten bigger or have you gotten smaller? Like, fuck. <laughs> and then the what little- a thing to say. Then the caddy line he says before he leaves oh, looks the same. <laughs> God, what a bastard. Um, I do want to point out Rafe Fine's full name is the most English thing I've ever heard in my life. His full name is Rafe Nathaniel Twistleton Wycombe Fines. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Born <He> in Suffolk. <laughs> he is so British. Oh my God. Like the most British that ever Britished. My God. You know he wears his suit. You know, it looks like he puffs out his chest, which to me is just like very British. Yeah. I, I, I like him a lot as a person, though. I read this story about this. Um, I might have told this at some point when we did, when we talked about Harry Potter, but I don't care. I've told so many different stories on these shows. I probably repeated myself so many times. Uh, just enjoy it. So he was getting in a limo with uh, his, like, you know, limo driver and uh, limo driver couldn't help but gush. You know, my God, Ray Fiennes is in my limo. And the guy just happened to spill like, oh, my my son's a huge Harry Potter fan. And Rafe goes like, oh, well, call him up. <laughs> and he called up his son and Rafe Fiennes had a over the phone magic duel with his son in character as Voldemort. <laughs> it, I hope I hope this is true because. It, it's paints him as such a cool guy. And I just, I want to like him so much. That is awesome. I hope it's true. I've heard, I usually hear good things about these British actors that they're very much like, it's just, it's not like Hollywood actors yeah. with to them. It's, it's a job. It's their job. They go do it. They go home and live their lives. Yeah. And they're, I think they're grateful that anybody cares about their work, which is nice. Yeah. Uh, moving on. Naomi Harris who plays Miss Moneypenny, but you don't know that till the end. She's just Eve for the whole movie. But her chemistry with Daniel Craig was like popping. That is some, that's the best sexual chemistry between Bond and Moneypenny in the entire franchise. Like, good God, yeah. just get a room. Yeah, and again, going back to that, you know, the writing, the interplay between these characters is superb. And this is what brought that to mind when I first booted up the movie because I hadn't seen it in a while. Yeah. And I was like, Wow, I forgot like how good their play is. As soon as they were like trading their ready bobs mm-hmm. to each other, yeah. Uh, she was nominated for um, in 2016 for Moonlight, and that's her only nomination to date. But she's in the prime of her career. Like this is not the last that the Oscars have seen of her. No. Uh, she's fantastic in the Bond films, in 28 Days Later, in Pirates of the Caribbean. She's she was great in Venom too. Like I, I she's one of my favorite actresses. Yeah, she knows how to do like your more Oscar material, but also going to these more like just fun adventurous type films and just bring a certain level of uh, prestige, if you will, when she's involved. Because she's she's a really good actress. I like her a lot. Yeah, for sure. So the uh, point that I actually do wish they had used more of her in Venom too. So I was like, oh, you got Naomi Harris. You never really use her a lot, but whatever. 
Yeah. Well, I'm like I said, you know, prime of her career. We're going to get so much from her in the next few decades, and I can't wait to watch it. And uh, my last performer I want to talk about is Albert Finney, one of the most respected uh, British actors of all time uh, and a true thespian if there ever was one. This guy never looked the same in any two movies. This dude was a chameleon and a strong actor. He was nominated five separate times, 1963 for Tom Jones, 1974 for Murder on the Orient Express, 1983 for The Dresser, 1984 for Under the Volcano, and 2000 for Aaron Brockovich. And personally, when I think of Albert Finney, I think of Miller's Crossing. (laughs) One of the best gangsters ever. Uh, And then, of course, Kincaid in Skyfall, his final role, actually, uh, was supposed to go to Sean Connery in A Perfect World, but Connery turned them down. Uh, But Albert Finney stepped into that performance with gusto and delivered one of my favorite characters in the bond franchise, this old gamekeeper who does has no stake in this fight whatsoever, but immediately is like, well, what do we got? <laughs> Just, of course I love him. Yeah, no, it, it sucks that like, uh, Connery turned it down. Cause that would have been so awesome to have that moment. But I mean, it, I would think just kills it. As the game, like, yeah, like you said, he just, he, you know, Bond comes home and he's just like, oh, you're home. And he's like, oh, okay, he's going to be a cool gamekeeper. And he's like, what do we have to do? As he's loading his shotgun, just, yeah. oh, I got this. Let's go. <laughs> this isn't your fight. Try and stop me, you jumped up little shit. <laughs> just, what a badass. It, it's so clear that these lines were written for Connery. You know, welcome to Scotland. Like, it's... <laughs> This was meant for him, but I love that Albert Finney stepped in and really made the role his own. Uh, yeah, I he died in 2019, and I just I feel like Hollywood's a little less, you know, it's, it's not it's worse off without him. I, I thought he was he's been one of my favorite actors for years, and I was really bummed when he when we lost him. But great, great final role. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Have you ever seen his version of Murder on the Orient Express from the 70s? No, because admittedly, I'm not the hugest Agatha Christie person, so I haven't seen a lot of the movies. Fair enough. Fair enough. It's it's pretty good. Um, he plays Poirot, and then you've also got Sean Connery, Ingrid Bergman, Anthony Perkins. Uh, solid cast. It's worth it. It's a, it's a fun watch. Uh, okay. yeah. I've seen the, the Kenneth Bradnall version. It's not great. Uh well, anyway, those are the performers I wanted to talk about. Uh, next up, cinematographer who keeps coming up on this show constantly because his work is unparalleled, Roger Deakins, <laughs> the king of cinematographers. He is the guy behind the camera for Skyfall. His Oscar resume is absolutely insane. He was nominated for the following films, The Shawshank Redemption, Fargo, Kundun, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou?, The Man Who Wasn't There?, no Country for Old Men, The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford, The Reader, True Grit, Skyfall, Prisoners, Unbroken, Sicario, and he won for Blade Runner 2049 and 1917. So, holy fuck. And that's just his Oscar resume. This dude is one of the greatest to ever step in front of a camera, and his work speaks for itself. Like, take a gander at the films that he's, done, he's been behind. <laughs> like, what... What a what a list. 
Yeah, I mean, when you're – God, he is one of the most prolific cinematographers working in the industry. It yeah. is insane. And, I he's, mean, it's good reason. He's fucking good, man. He's worked with the Coen brothers on so many of their movies, including The Big Lebowski and The Hudsucker Proxy and Barton Fink. Like, he's the man. I mean, we named the you know our best scene award after this guy for a reason. He's Roger Deakins. His name is synonymous with the best of film. And that's, that's amazing. I love that. This guy's the, the, the man. Uh, and, you know, he's no sign of stopping. He's got stuff in the works right now. He's the, he's the man. Yeah, he, he's still going. I mean, it's, it's insane. Oh, what yeah. He, what he's doing. He, he did the cinematography for 1917, right? Or am I yep. thinking of a different one? Yeah. He won, yep, he won his second Oscar for that. And he's the, he's the biggest reason why that movie is so gorgeous. Oh yeah, I was say that movie. I was thinking specifically of uh, one to me one of the most more riveting scenes when he gets to the town at night and is run. Oh, he's trying to escape in the middle of night and has to run. I mean, it's from the way it's shot with that one take, the way it's lit, it is one of the most gorgeous, captivating, just edge of your seat moments in that entire film. Well, for me, the scene in the in 1917 that got me was when. Um... I don't remember the character's name, but George, George Mackay, our main guy, finally makes it to the battlefield right when they're about to surge. And he's oh. running across the battlefield to try to make it to the commanding officer. And the music is surging. And it's incredible. The, the name of that bit of score is called 1600 Men. And it is so amazing. And the guy who did the score is the dude we're about to talk about. But that scene, George Mackay trips. He runs into somebody. And that wasn't supposed to happen. He fucked up. But he got up and kept going. And they kept it in the movie. Cause it works. It looks like desperation and not paying attention. And like, I need to get there. And Jesus Christ, I 1917 is such a marvel. Such a masterpiece of filmmaking. Yeah. Dude, I remember when I saw that, when I got to that scene, I was like pretty relaxed at the time. Cause I was like, Oh, okay. He found the team. Now I'm going to relax a little bit. And then that started up and I like, I had like my feet up on the table and everything, and like my feet came down. I started inching forward. I was like, "Make it, make it, make it, my God!" <laughs> yeah, it's it's bonkers. I I saw it at the movies, and it was an experience. Like I'd heard it was good, but God damn, um, that was the final bonus episode of the Film Gasm Podcast. After that, we decided to stop doing it. Uh, good call. <laughs> Our next guy is one of my all-time favorite film composers, Thomas Newman. Uh, a guy behind some of the greatest music and film, um, his Oscar resume, he has been nominated for, uh, let me check here, 15 Oscars has yet to win, which is unreal. Here's his nominations. The Shawshank Redemption, Little Women, Unstrung Heroes, American Beauty. This is all for best score, by the way. Road to Perdition, Finding Nemo, A Series of Unfortunate Events, The Good German, Best song for Wally, Down to Earth, and best score for Wally, Skyfall, Saving Mr. Banks, Bridge of Spies, Passengers, and 1917. Oh, my God. <laughs> Thomas Newman is a very distinct, uh, he likes his piano. That's very prominent in his um, scores. Shawshank and Road to Perdition are probably my favorite of his, but every time I find out, you know, I learn of a new score he did that I didn't know about, I get just like, oh. Wow. Uh, yeah. He's the best. He also yeah. did the theme music for Castle Rock, by the way. 
Oh, really? I really like that show. I'm so mad that I didn't get a third fucking season. Fine. Yeah. Um, God, God, that is an impressive resume. Dear Lord. <laughs> yeah, he, he is so good at what he does. And again, those are just his Oscar nominated films. If you look at his regular resume, he's done so much more that weren't, you know, that wasn't touched by the Oscars. But uh, yeah, he's the man. I love Thomas Newman. Um, next up, film editor Stuart Baird, uh, nominated for two films for best film editing, 1978 Superman and 1988's Gorillas in the Mist. And he is the editor of Skyfall. Uh, good work. <laughs> well edited yeah. film. Very well edited film. It's hard to always like super common editing because a good, ed- like nationally, I know they told us this in film school, a good editor, you're not going to notice. Like that's the key to good editing is that you don't notice. That's so, true. And looking at his resume, he's had a, uh, some incredible he is the editor of i'm just going to point out his good stuff because he's done a lot of shit too but you know this is the place to celebrate the best work of people isn't it Uh, It we have something cooking for the other side of the coin um again you'll have to the show that shall not be named (laughs) at least not right now some of his films um 2018's tomb raider skyfall casino royale maverick die hard 2 lethal weapon 2 lethal weapon uh, Superman 2, Superman, and the fucking Omen. <laughs> he came out with a super creepy Omen score? No, he, he's the editor. Oh, the editor, sorry. I was yeah. still thinking. Yeah. Wow, I, oh, wow. However, you might be excited to know that the super creepy Omen score by Jerry Goldsmith won him an Oscar in 76. That's right, it did. I remember that does make me happy. Yeah. Uh, good work, Baird. Of course, you are the guy who edited Green Lantern, the legend of Zorro. <laughs> so, you know, you're not perfect, but you're doing a good job. Oh, I mean, look, did Ron Camel direct Greenland? Yes. And Zorro. <laughs> so he turned around and gave us some pretty good quality bomb movies. So that's, that's right. Exactly. Our final guy is production designer Dennis Gasner. He was nominated all for production design. 1991's Barton Fink, he won. 1991's Bugsy, nominated 2002 Road to Perdition, 2007 The Golden Compass, 2014 Into the Woods, 2017 Blade Runner 2049, and 2019's 1917. So clearly Mendez likes to work with the same people. Clearly. And was able to get them nominated for 1917. (laughs) But this guy is also the production designer for Quantum of Solace and Spectre. So he's been, he's done some Bond films. Uh, good for him. Didn't do Casino Royale, weirdly. But Quantum, Spectre, and Skyfall are all his. Oh, nice. Yeah. I mean, good job. Everything looks appropriately British. Oh, yeah, it's quite. Yes. I think the production design of, like, Silva's, you know, isolated island, I think, like, that's fantastic. That stands out, yeah. The absolutely. London tube scenes, his uh, Silva's prison, of course, the, you know, Skyfall, the manor. I think production design plays a big part in Skyfall. No, it, it, I think out of all the Bond films, I'd say it's probably the most important in this one. I I don't see where you could make the argument necessarily for the other Craig era ones, but definitely in Skyfall. But again, this one tells such a personal story. It makes sense that the production design is important in this installment. Yeah, exactly. 
So those are the individuals who've been touched by the Oscars for this film. Now let's talk about the Oscars themselves, the 85th Academy Awards, uh, hosted by Seth MacFarlane, which who I thought did a fantastic job. This is the one where he sung the song about all the actresses who appeared naked in movies, like it was some big ass secret, and he got a lot of trouble for that. Yeah. It's always funny, like the Emmys, you know, when they got Ricky Gervais and they got appalled away. So I'm like, what do you expect? You got comedians known for pushing the boundaries to host your show. It's like if they got Dave Chappelle, he's already having, which by the way, I need to watch his new special on Netflix. Um, He's, you know, been constantly slammed. Every time a new special comes on, they went, let's hire him for the, uh, the Academy Awards this year to host. And then they're completely shocked at what he says. Like, it's amazing. I, I don't get it. I don't get there. All right, whatever. You know what? I I would love to see Chappelle host the Oscars. I would but, actually love to watch that, mainly because I've been really liking his recent stand-up. I'll say it. I know it would, I don't care what who online comes at me. I like his recent stand-ups. Oh, me too. I think his specials have all been hilarious um, and insightful. But um, I, mean, I got to watch his new one as well. Uh, oh, what was I going to say? I have been enjoying the recent Oscar trend of no host. I think... That's fine. I don't think we need all the cutesy shit. I don't need to see Ellen order a pizza for everybody. Like, I don't give a fuck. I just want to yeah. see movies get statues. That's all I'm here for. Yeah. You know, you know what I think ages like, you know, what I think is more offensive. I would say is probably more offensive than like getting a comedian that you should know is going to say something that might offend you. Huh. When you have someone like James Franco host Oscars and then what comes out comes out down the line. I think that looks bad, more bad than getting a comedian known for saying offensive things. Are you so, telling me that you think that actual sexual assault is worse than saying a bad joke? Yes. Wow. How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah, 100%. That's how it should be. It's fucked that some people think the other way. Uh, anyway, uh, at this Oscars, uh, Life of Pi won the most awards with four, and Lincoln had the most nominations with 12. The show ran for three hours and 35 minutes. And, uh, yeah, there we go. It's also had one of the few instances that a film tied for an award, and it was Skyfall. So we'll get into that in a minute here. Um, Skyfall was nominated for five Oscars, one, two. Uh, let's start with the nominations. Uh, best sound mixing. We've got <clears throat> Argo, Life of Pi, Lincoln, Skyfall, and the winner, Les Miserables. Uh, by the way, at this awards, Argo took home Best Picture. Yeah, a lot of people are kind of like, what? With that. I mean, look, it's a good movie. I liked it, but Best Picture? Yeah, I know. Against, like, Django? <laughs> no. But yeah, no. Okay. Uh, <laughs> sound mixing. Uh, have you seen, uh, which of these films have you seen? I have seen Argo. Say it again. Sorry, say the names again. Argo, Life of Pi, Lincoln, Skyfall, and Les Mis. I have seen Argo, Lincoln, and Skyfall. Okay. Um, of what I've seen and what I do know, uh, I can see why Les Mis won. I mean, it's a musical for God's sakes. Yeah. So I can see why that one won. I don't. I I would have to see Life of Pi, but I'm not. From what I've heard, I don't see how that would get in there at all for sound. Um, from what I know about the movie, Skyfall, I can see being there. It did have some good uh, musical moments that I enjoyed quite a bit. 
And Lincoln, again, I remember watching that. It sounded and popped out to me when I saw Lincoln. Um, same with Argo, if I'm being completely honest. Um, well, I've seen all five of these films, and I got to give it – I think I think Les Mis should have taken this one. Uh, you know, any movie that can, you know, work with Russell Crowe's pretty terrible singing voice deserves a, a, a statue. Like, good job. You know, I, mean, I, think yeah. of, I think of that meme of Bart Simpson with the cake that says, at least you tried. I always, anytime I think of Russell Crowe now, I think of South Park. Farting around the world. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good times. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, I'm with you. Like I said, it, I, I've, I've only seen three of these movies, but I mean, yeah, Skyfall had some good moments, and obviously I'll talk about moments that stuck out for me with sound, or more so music than anything. But like Lincoln and Argo, yeah, sound didn't really stand out in either one yeah. of those movies. So from what I've heard about Les Mis, I can, yeah, I would agree with Les Mis. It, it's, a, it's a musical for Christ's sakes. Les Le Mis. Sorry, Les Mis. Mis. <laughs> Let's have a little culture here. I'm to a dude born and raised in Texas, unfortunately. I'm talking to a dude with a Cajun bloodline who should have a little bit of French in his dialect. I do, I do have half French, half Spaniard in my bloodline. So, and I have been to other countries. It's the best part of this. God. Yeah, I'm not letting Les Miz get away from get away with you know not happening. Yeah, so Les Miz should oh, have. God damn it. Thing. Uh, I can see why that one get it. Absolutely. <laughs> Next up, best original score. We've got Anna Karenina by Dario Marianelli, Argo by Alexandre Desplat, Lincoln by John Williams, Skyfall by Thomas Newman, and the winner, Life of Pi by Michael Dana. Uh, score. Again, I've seen all five of these. No, wait, scratch that. I have not seen Anna Karenina. Oh, mostly I've just seen the same three I mentioned earlier. So, yeah. I figured. I figured you had not seen Life of Pi between the, the last award and this one. That would be kind of amazing. <laughs> you must teach me the way, like your ways, because that's incredible. Um, I think, honestly, I, I would have given this to Skyfall. I think that the score in this film is impeccable. It's one of the few Bond scores that really stands out. And uh, I think Thomas Newman's a national treasure, and I want to I, I hope one day to see him get a statue. 15 nominations and no wins is, is fucking insulting. Like, give the man a statue or, or he's going to keep coming. He's going to be fucking uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and the Revenant. Just call his way to uh, Oscar. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. No, I, uh, yeah, again, based off what I've seen, like, I stand by the exact same thing I saw with Argo and Lincoln. I they did not have sound or music that stood out to me. I mean, Argo relied on a lot of 70s songs because of the time it took place in 70s or 60s. It's been a hot mess. I've seen it. I have to refresh myself. Um, but yeah, I'm with you. I think Skyfall should be on this one. Between, I mean, just between like the, the Adele opening song, which I think is one of the best Bond theme songs for me. It's one of my favorites. Oh, yeah. We're going to um, get to that for sure. Yeah, and then like I said, the the use of like the classic theme at times in the movie with the newer score works so well. Again, it fits into that whole like old meets new in this movie. Yeah, Skyfall all the way. Well, and I was very impressed with how Thomas Newman was able to fold the Adele song into the score, like at times, like when he's going into Macau and you can like 
it's Skyfall that bleeds into the Bond theme. And it's like, dude, you are a rock star. Like, well done, you. Tommy, good job. Tommy. <laughs> Tommy boy. <laughs> I, I, I love Thomas Newman's work. I really do. Um, next up, best cinematography. We have Anna Karenina by Seamus McGarvey. God, that is an Irish name. Um, Django Unchained by Robert Richardson. Lincoln by Janusz Kaminski. Skyfall by Roger Deakins. And the winner, Life of Pi by Claudio Miranda. Uh, to me, cinematography 100% goes to Django. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. I'm, I'm going to say Django because I've actually seen Django. I know I've, I've seen the trailers for Life of Pi. I've seen that it's supposed to be like a visually stunning it is <laughs> life of pies is special it's a cool story it, it looks amazing but django is unique it looks like django well and to me i think this is why i would give it a Django. i think this is the reason for me yes life of pie is visually stunning but a lot of the colors you're seeing that those creatures and stuff are doing are computer they're not necessarily an actual cinematographer for doing their job whereas with django and you know you know how Tarantino is. It's a cinematographer doing their job. Well, I'm curious what you have to say about this. Life of Pi won visual effects, and it beat The Hobbit and Unexpected Journey, The Avengers, Prometheus, and Snow White and the Huntsman. You know what? You know, I've seen all the other movies minus Life of Pi. I'd actually probably give this one Life to Pi. This one I would, because again, yeah, I would say, vis- like I said, there's, to me, you know, stuff... When I think cinematography, I'm thinking lighting a scene. And that takes, you have a person who's paid to do that. That's their job to help photograph a scene. And a lot of what's in Life of Pi is achieved through visual effects. A lot of that light and stuff you see is achieved through visual effects. Whereas like you said, Django, it's it's a cinematographer going out there, taking, you know, looking at their F-stops and all that stuff and making sure that it's lit right and looks a certain way he needed it to look like an old west spaghetti western type of film and he completely achieved that well that and like you know the random you know zooms into characters faces and the it's it's very much it's got that tarantino flavor but i think the cinematography stands on its own i yeah. i django's a favorite of mine anyway it's hard for me not to give at every oscar to that movie when well, the way and because i've actually i saw it recently i just haven't put it on the way he did the f- couple of flashback scenes and how they oversaturated the uh, everything, yeah. the flashbacks, so you knew it took place back then. Yeah, works. It actually it, it makes it such like so grimy and just gets you into this despicable mindset. You're going back to a really harsh flashback, and it works completely. Damn right. Yeah, Django cinematography again. Life of Pi, good movie. I think a little bit overrated. Like I said, I don't mind giving the visual effects and don't get me wrong. I personally like all those other films much better. I'll sit through those again, but I would, I'd probably give it visual effects. I want, I'd probably give life by visual effects. Yeah. Not cinematography though. Fair enough. Uh, Now to the two awards that Skyfall did win. First up best sound editing. We have Argo, Django Unchained, Life of Pi and Skyfall tied with zero dark 30 for the win for sound mm-hmm. editing uh that's neat that 
rarely happens. It's only happened six times in Oscar history. Uh, pretty neat. So sound editing, do you think both those films uh, are on par to win sound editing? From what I remember, Zero Dark Thirty, yeah, I do. Um, whereas, you know, I think Bond excels with like, you know, its score and like you were saying, mixing this its score with the song and how they achieve sound with a lot of stuff in the movie. Zero Dark Thirty, you know, being a war movie, being a almost like a mix of war and espionage, it knows how to use sound. I remember being like really blown away with a lot of what they achieved in that movie when I saw it. So yeah, I can see why they would be tied. I actually think that's fair. It's been a minute since I saw Zero Dark Thirty, so I don't really have a lot to say about that one. Um, I think Django excels in its sound editing. Um, but yeah, Skyfall, I think, yeah, I'm okay with that, with Skyfall taking this one. Pretty cool. It's hard to argue sound, like best sound editing, you know, like how do you decide that? I don't know how to decide that. It, it's it's really it, it's tough because like i said they break and they break down sound so much at the oscars the different stuff that's like you have to look at every minute detail with it which can kind of for me get frustrating and like again a lot of people forget like what a lot kind of like editing like good sound if it's good and the sound person did their job you're not going to notice like it's when it's bad that you notice and you go like, what is wrong with the sound in this movie? It's kind of like when you watch like a really shitty YouTube video and you're like, what happened with the sound? Well, they didn't edit it good enough. It's true. Um, you might be interested to know that recently the Oscars have combined best sound editing and best sound mixing into just best sound. That makes a lot more sense. I'm glad they did that. I wish they'd call it something else. I think best sound design would have been good, but best sound, I just, I hate how vague that sounds. I've always hated that. Yeah, I bitched about that on so many episodes. Yeah, no, I'm with you because, like I said, like editing and sound. I mean, ultimately, like I said, they're and this is some, and I got this when I went to film school. Is when they taught me this is that like if it's good, you're not going to notice. You shouldn't notice if it's good. Yeah, that's why if it's like a bad film, and I've always kind of put like editing. Like when I mentioned, like for example, like the first Venom film, to me it was very noticeable that they were editing around what was probably already material because the editing was a little wonky there. That's yeah. when I noticed it. But for the most part, if it's good, no, I'm not going to notice. I'm not going to comment on it. They did a good job. Fair enough. And that takes us to best original song. We have Before My Time from Chasing Ice. Everybody Needs a Best Friend from Ted. Pie's Lullaby from Life of Pi. Yeah, Ted has an Oscar nomination. Uh, Suddenly from Les Mis. And the winner, of course, Skyfall from Skyfall. Uh, This is a no-brainer, I think. Oh, yeah, Ted. I know. It's totally Ted. Okay. <laughs> I mean, nothing defines Les Mis like suddenly. No, it's Skyfall. Of course it's Skyfall. It's yeah. one of the greatest Bond themes ever. And the first Bond theme to win Best Song. You believe that shit? Really? It took them that long? Before Skyfall and then Spectre won, two movies, or three movies from the Bond franchise had been up for song. Live and Let Die, For Your Eyes Only, and The Spy Who Loved Me. That's it. I think that's insane. It is because, like, that's always such a big deal when a new movie comes out. It's like, who's going to do the Bond song for this one? Like, that's almost as important as who's going to be the villain, who's going to be the Bond girl. Like, yeah. that's one of the key elements that they have to get for the new movie. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it's a franchise that is for sure going to have a theme song every time. So, how does this not get recognized by the Oscars every year? 
Yeah. I, mean, I, I don't get it. Like, you know, my name should be a winner. I just, yeah. I don't, I don't get it. Like this new one, for example, I remember when they, uh, they released it online before the movie came out. I stayed away from it. I was like, no, I don't know. I don't want to listen to it. Not Tom seeing the movie. I literally held out till I saw the movie. So when I watched it, it was my first time hearing it. I'm very big about that. For I, two well, years you held yes. out. That's yes. amazing. I'm I very, didn't hold it. I listened immediately. No, I held out. I'm very big about like, I don't want to hear it till I go see the movie. Cause it's such like, it to me, it's like, I go to Bond film. I, I want that song. I want to see, hear that song. I don't want to hear it online. It's it's weird because like I watch the trailer as soon as it launches, but that Bond song, I'm like, no, stay away. Not until I go watch the movie, then well, I want to hear it. I'm curious, what did you what did you think of the song? No time to die. I liked it. It wasn't my most favorite one, my favorite song in the franchise, but I did like it. I thought Billy Eilish, Billy Eilish did a good job as someone who is unfortunately getting to a point where I don't always know every new artist coming out. Yeah, this is my first time. Um, I didn't know who the hell she was till the Bond theme. I, I wanted to call her Billy Eyelash. Uh, but there's, you know, there's a good to fair chance it's going to be a hat trick and she'll win the Oscar for this song, which would be great. Three in a row would be amazing. Yeah, I'm down for it. Like I said, it personally wasn't my favorite in the bunch. No, but I did like it. I thought it was really good. And it fit the mood of the movie. Again, I think that's why for me, I don't like listening to it before I see the movie, because usually if they do a good job, it's going to fit the movie I'm about to get. Yeah, you're not wrong. I think some Bond themes have been a little off. Like, I think uh, Octopussy, uh, All Time High by Rita Coolidge, maybe the worst one. I I don't care for that. It doesn't make sense. Look, I, I personally don't care for that movie too much. Yeah, Octopussy is a hard one to sell. Yeah, it's not my all-time favorite uh, in the bunch, I'll admit it. Plus, it gives you the image of this like frightening, like woman that has just eight. Never mind. But um, yeah, I think that there's there's a you know if you, if there's disconnect between the theme and the movie, you're gonna have disconnect with the audience. The theme sets the tone for the film. And that's why you you know my name is so like you know Bond is back and he's you know better than ever has that vibe. Even Quantum of Solace, I think another way to die by Jack White and Alicia Keys, underrated and pretty badass song, I think. Yeah. And, and that's actually, to me, been a really strong suit in this Craig era is that I actually, even if it's not my favorite, even if it's not my all-time favorite song in the franchise, they've all been good songs for that movie. I think the goofiest one is Thunderball, 1965. Tom Jones, that song makes zero sense. <laughs> he clearly wanted to write a song called Thunderball to fit the movie, but he didn't know what the fuck Thunderball means, and neither do we. Nobody does. It's not a thing. <laughs> He probably got the script and was like, I don't know what to do with this, but I'll figure something out. Did you know, I always thought that the Bond uh, artist selection was like, they come, you know, they write the song and then they find somebody to sing it. No, that's apparently artists audition with songs of their own. And then they're selected as Bond themes. There's so many songs out there that were almost Bond themes. And it's so weird to hear them. Like 65, Johnny Cash did one for Thunderball. And it's like a old west kind of thunderball. It's so weird, but it's cool. It's a cool song. Uh, I want to see if I can find some like metal ones, like some diehard metal band. It's just like a diehard James Bond fan. Uh, Alice Cooper nearly did it for the Man with the Golden Gun, but his song got changed at the last minute to Lulu's version. But his song in the Man with the Golden Gun got released as a single. You can hear that. Okay, um, so that would have been awesome. I love Alice Cooper. Radiohead did like two or three. They keep getting turned down. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, they did one for Spectre that wasn't bad. Uh, 2012, Muse did a song called Supremacy that actually was pretty good. If they hadn't gone with Adele, this would have been a good second. Would have changed the tone of Skyfall, but Mute, uh, Supremacy is such a cool song. There's a little bit of Bond theme in the, in the song you can hear. But I just I found that out a few months ago, and I thought, that is so cool. Like, wow. you know, they, you f- people find out they're making a new Bond movie, and then artists who want to do it start writing songs that they think might get picked. It's, that's neat. It's like the Eurovision yeah. song contest. I have like this mental vision of something like a band like Slipknot going, there's a new Bond film coming out. Guys, we got to come up with a song. Probably, maybe. I'm sure, you know, at some point that's happened. Yeah. Uh, Rob Zombie has one out there that we don't know about. <laughs> I want to do some research. I want to look into like who has almost made it. Like what are the songs that were nearly Bond themes? There's got to be, you know, this franchise has been around for 50 years. There's got to be a bunch of these. Like, it has to be. God, you know what? One band I just saw that'd be weird. Tool, if they had one, God, that'd be a strange. I mean, they, you know, Duran Duran's got one, so it's not it's not that weird. I was like actually thinking about who could actually probably fit with how their music is nowadays. Fucking Aha has one. <laughs> you forget like bands that were huge in the in the eighties. Yeah, <laughs> it's weird. You know, I've I've always thought like I've always wanted to hear like Florence and the Machine. I think would do a great job. Uh, like the early stuff they went back to the early stuff they could pull it off no i think too folky i don't want to hear you know i only hear a folky bond Um, theme like what is this like bond in amish country i don't want to hear that yeah this is exactly what you're getting (laughs) (laughs) oh but yeah i think that's a cool kind of yeah cool research to do who almost made it uh yeah, that's the Oscars of of, 80, of the 85th Academy Awards. Um, those the nominees and the winners. Anybody, um, any films you want to shout out from this Oscars that you you liked that you thought like deserved recognition? Not off the top of my head. Fair enough. Thank you. <laughs> well, this you know some films that were recognized at this Oscars. You've got The Master, uh, Silver Linings Playbook, uh, Lincoln, of course. Like I like both those uh, Silver Lines Playbook and Master. I like those a lot, especially the Master. I actually really love the Master. That's a great movie. I've seen it quite a bit. I, I fucking love that movie. <laughs> um, Flight, Moonrise Kingdom, uh, Paranorman, Brave, one best animated feature this year. Uh, not great. Paranorman's really good. I've actually I, I have a big soft spot for Paranorman. Nice. I figured. I gotta watch that. Um, and yeah, so just just a neat. Uh, Need awards. These, I like when good films get recognition, but you know, some shitty ones that's personal hatred. And I won't bring that into this show. (laughs) So with that, um, let's do our awards for Skyfall. Um, If you listen to this show, you'll know our awards. We've got the Quentin Tarantino award for the best line of the movie, the Ennio Morricone award for the best music moment. It could be a piece of the score, a needle drop, just a cool music moment. The Philip Seymour Hoffman Award for the best performance of the film, who won the movie, and the Roger Deakins Award for the best scene of the film. It could be a little moment. It could be a drawn-out scene. It could be an action sequence. It could be anything. So let's do this. Uh, Tarantino, what do, you, what do you got for the best right. line? I actually came up with two. They're, kind of, they're just quick, nothing deep, just kind of quick throwaway lines, but I like them. Uh, the first one was one that made me laugh because it's, again, kind of going back to that old meets new, right? It's paying homage to prior entries. It's the legacy of James Bond. That's 
when he's uh, getting handed his gadgets from Q and he gets that little thing, he goes, is that it? And Q's response goes, are you expecting an exploding pin? We don't really go in for that anymore. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a quick throwaway line, but it makes me laugh. And just the appreciation of kind of going back and making that little nod to the original run. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I like that. I love that moment with, with Q. I love when he's like a gun and a radio. Not exactly Christmas, is it? <laughs> They're, I've always loved the relationship between Bond and Q. It's just such irritation, such supremely British irritation. Yeah, especially in this one, because like, like I said, like that scene's so great because, you know, he sits there and Craig just immediately antagonizes him to size him. And you can tell that's what it is. It's to size him of like how, because at the end of the day, he has to trust this guy's going to give him gadgets to keep him alive. Yeah. And he's like, you're like 18. Like, you, I'm going to put my life in your hands. Yeah. And what I love is that Q fires right back. He doesn't miss a beat. He fires right back at him. And you see Craig smile for a quick second and kind of go, I like him. He's, he's good. Like, you know, in that instant, okay, I trust this guy. Yeah. And, you know, even you see in kind of like the, the sequels after this, yeah, they antagonize each other, but there's a level of respect there between the two. Yeah. It's always been the case with Bond and Q. It's like at the end of the day, Q is there to make sure Bond comes back alive. And they both know that. Yeah. yeah. Good call. What's your other uh, line? The other one was one that kind of, I remember kind of taking people by storm because it made us think maybe Bond just doesn't, does, just doesn't, Bond doesn't dally with just ladies. He might have other curiosities. Yeah. And that is when Silver's trying to, his Silver's introduction and he's, you know, trying to make him squirm and Bond's reply as his, he has a man's hands on his legs is what makes you think this is my first time. <laughs> And then his little, oh, Mr. Bond. <laughs> like, ooh. Yeah. Like, if anybody is, you know, just taking all comers, it's James Bond. Yeah. It, it's a line that stuck with me. It's like, quick, again, just a quick throwaway line. But I remember people were just like, what? No. Bond is not. And I'm like, look. Yeah, he is. This man truly cares about his country. And protecting it, he's going to do, he's going to fucking anything that walks. To get to achieve the mission, he will do his duty to queen and country, or king and country. Either way, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. James Bond is yeah. He, that man is one hundred percent just given and taken. No matter what gender, he doesn't care. Yeah, he does not care. And like the scene itself, like it's, there's good lead up to that scene. The scene starts to get like from an antagonistic moment of like who is this who is this guy to him kind of like caressing his chest it gets so oddly sexual i <laughs> love i love it yeah javier has been ca- like typecast as great villains with terrible haircuts which i think is hilarious but yeah i think that scene really sets the tone for this guy to like who is this fucking weirdo but also, like Bond fights right, fires right back. Like he's not going to let him make him uncomfortable. He's James Bond. Yeah, <laughs> he doesn't get uncomfortable. <laughs> no, you see, like for a second, you're like, oh, is he about getting uncomfortable? But like I said, he fires back with that line, and even Silver's like, oh, Mister Bond. <laughs> I love when he says, like, 
he's trying to give him an ultimatum and Silva's like, you know, his whole rat metaphor. He's like, we can either eat each other. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Gives him that like, huh? (laughs) Sound good. (laughs) (laughs) I like, I hope I let, I want to think a lot of that was Javier kind of, kind of riffing and it made it in the movie. I hope so. Cause I, he's one of my favorite villains, like of all, I fucking love Javier Bardem in this movie. I love how Silva goes from that kind of weird and like a little manic and kind of funny to a full-blown psychopath over the course of the movie. I love that. It goes from gradual, like, yeah, you know, I might screw with you a little too. I'm going to kill you and everyone you care about because you're in my way. Like, well, well done. Oh, the scene when he takes out his dentures that apparently keep his whole face intact. Oh. Yeah, what does he say? Like, look upon your work, mother. Like, yeah. fuck, man. <laughs> it's, Honestly, it's- like... I was having a hard time not picking lines that he said. He had so many good lines. He that that bit where he takes out his his mouth uh, nearly be, was my Roger Deakins, but I, I changed it at the last minute. Okay. Uh, I too have two quotes, uh, both kind of throwaway lines that I enjoyed. I, nothing really deep here either. Uh, my first comes from Kincaid, and it's pretty. I've already said it once on this show. It's when he shoots the guy, like one of the guys in the when he. Like when they first attack Skyfall, and he just goes, "Welcome to Scotland." <laughs> like, fuck yeah! <laughs> Defending his homeland. Yeah, <laughs> he doesn't uh, give a fuck what's going on here. He's just happy to get to shoot somebody. <laughs> in the in the history of one liners, it's one of the better ones that we've got out the action genre. <laughs> and I like to imagine, you know, there's a universe out there where we got to hear Sean Connery say that. It, <laughs> There would have been cheering in the goddamn theater. Um, and then my other one comes from the uh, Silva when he gets captured and he's talking to him and explains about what happened to him, how he was forced to try to kill himself with the cyanide, but it didn't take. And he says the line, life clung to me like a disease. Like, Jesus, man, <laughs> what a bleak outlook. <laughs> like, I, I wasn't allowed to die. Yeah, like Just, he, he wanted to die after all that torture he went through in life. Just said, "Yeah, no, you're not done." Instead, it sunk in his skull and made him look like a monster, and probably drove him insane. But I just love that life clung to me like a disease. Like what a what a way to look at who you are as a person. What a way to what a mantra to live by. God, it, uh, to me, like it it perfectly defines him as a villain. Like it. That one line tells you everything you know about who he is, his mindset, and why he's doing what he's doing. He he was tortured. He feels betrayed. And the last thing he needed to do to finally be done with it all did not work. I love that the whole movie is, you know, M's mistake. Both of them, you know. She potentially destroyed both of their lives. She, you know, left excuse me she left silva to rot in a chinese cell and then she ordered bond shot and he almost got him killed but what makes them different is how they choose to accept their role in this disgrace silva saw it as m's fuck up she ruined my life whereas bond saw it as you should have trusted me to do the job like you yeah and it's all about the job with bond and it it was never personal bond Mm -hmm. because bond does not have that it's never personal with bond it's always business it's always the mission even on the other end. And I think no other film exemplifies this better than Skyfall. Yeah, this film perfectly 
just like I said with that line exemplifying our villain, this movie goes out of its way to exemplify who this Bond is in this yeah. canon. Like, what does he stand for? Who, what does he live for? And you get that just pounded into you throughout the movie. I don't, for once, I don't mean pounded into you in like a bad way, but in a good way. Yeah. Well, you get that line. Bond himself in- is the one pounding. Yeah, definitely. We get that line from M where she says, orphans make the best recruits. And you know that like she's been doing this for a while. Like Bond is not her first project. You know, Silva was. And it's interesting to see how both characters ended up with her influence. And yeah, I think it's, I think it's a really cool way to go to see an agent who was given all the same treatment and skills as Bond, but chose to take it personally. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. Um, the Morricone, the music moment. I'm curious of what you have here. So this one was actually like, it kind of took me more. Originally, I won't say right now. Originally, I did write down the theme song. But as the film was coming towards its conclusion, there was a moment that just put a really big spell on my face because it was such a fan service moment in a good way. Yeah. And that's when they unveil the Austin Mar- Martin and they play the theme song real quick. Yeah. That's what I put down because, like, it's a small moment, but it it's fan service. Just like, you know, like how I always talk about, like, Avengers Endgame is fan service in the best possible way. Yeah. Same with this little moment. It's just a moment of, like, this is for the fans. We know how much this card means to the franchise, to you. Here's the theme song and the classic theme song. Not anything new. The one you know and love so much. Nothing wrong with a little fan service. Always feels good to, you know, just have a little smile moment. Uh, and yeah, I, I think that's a great pick. I did go with the theme song. Um, I just love it. It, it sets the, the stage right away for something that's going to be not your traditional Bond film, but a lot more personal. And I, I like that a lot. And I think it's fucking amazing that Adele recorded it in one take in about 10 minutes. Adele's just a, like, I'm, you know me, I'm a metal guy, but even I can't deny the sheer talent that is Adele. Like, dear God. I love that she is one of the most talented singers of all time, but have you ever heard her talk? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she, like fucking Eliza Doolittle on crack. It's ridiculous. But she's an incredible powerhouse when it comes to her art, and I respect the hell out of that. <laughs> Yeah, like I said, I, I did have this sit down originally because I was like, God, this theme song's so good. But then as soon as I heard that theme song, when they it, I was like, oh, this is it. I'm going with this. I had too big of a smile on my face not to go with it. Yeah, understandable. It's a great moment. I love that they kept the car alive. The 64 Aston Martin, James Bond's car, especially in this universe. You know, he won it in a card game from some asshole. I love that. Yeah. And then had Q, you know, retrofit it with machine guns and an ejector seat. <laughs> Which we'll get more into how awesome that pays off in no time to die. <laughs> oh my god, yes. <laughs> um, so the Philip Seymour Hoffman, I'm very interested to hear who you picked for the PSH. So, I like so like I like I've I won't keep saying it for this in the next one. Like I again, hard time for me picking this. I'll tell you who I did cross off, and it was hard. It was tough. I did. Cross out Javier Bardem as much. Wow. I know, I know. Just wait, because that was tough. Because I think he is hands down like top five villains. Like he's one of my favorites. 
I also crossed out Ralph Fiennes, and I really like him as him. Rafe Fiennes. Rafe Fiennes, sorry. Ralph <laughs> Fiennes. Let's keep... I wonder if his brother <laughs> goes by Yosef Fiennes. <laughs> anyway. You know what's, you know what's going to be a recurring thing on this podcast is me fucking up names. <laughs> True, but then I get to have a moment where I put you down, and that's always great for me. I remember that for the feature show. Let's go on. <laughs> but either way, I did cross him out as well, even though I I love him so much in this movie and what he's done with like the next two movies. And what I ultimately w- went with of the three I had was Dame Judy Dench. My God, that's amazing. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh I you know, like I said earlier, she's always she's a great actress in general. She's always been good as him. I think she's hands down the best him to me. And she just is so, so good in this movie and really gives it her all considering it's her last time. And the way she reveals more about herself, I want to say more in this one than any of the ones she's been in. You see that exterior get chipped away and how she's reacting to it throughout the movie. And she does it so well. That's great. I, I love that you picked Judy Dench because she is amazing in this film. Um, rewatching the Craig era for prepping for No Time to Die, I got a whole new appreciation for her M in relation to the past M's. And Bernard Lee and Robert Brown both brought what they had to the role. They were good. Uh, Ray Fiennes does a great job as you know, his, his own version of M, but Judy Dench, I think brought something to the role that had never been done before. And her relationship with bond is so special and unique, especially in Skyfall where we get an actual role for M as a person and not just as the person who gives M there, gives bond the mission. We actually have a character here who has a lot of flaws and a lot of fuck ups to get a lot of people killed. And she realizes that in the movie, like, this is my fault. And I love that she kind of, you know, she tries to redeem herself. Um, it's, it's great. And in the end, you know, she does, she goes out like a fucking champion. Yeah. Uh, it's great. And in yeah. Bond learns something about, you know, how difficult it is to be at the top of the pyramid. Exactly. Yeah. And for me, there's two scenes always that just stand out with her for me. It's when she's reading Bond, she's looking at his performance eval yeah. and she lies to him. And when he leaves, Tanner, I didn't know he passed everything. And she just goes, he didn't. <laughs> but she believes in him enough and knows that he's the only man that can pull this off that she lied to get him back out there. Like that, my first part of my second one was the one we talked about earlier at the, when she's having that meeting with the ministry and she has that great speech. She reads the poem from her late husband. And again, she asks that question, do you feel safe? It, it's just a it's a beautiful moment where you see that for this you know she gives off this cold heartless exterior exterior but she believes so hard in what she's doing is right and that she is absolutely protecting her country and she has nothing but absolute faith in her agents because you do see her kind of lose it she's not happy that her agents are getting outed and killed at the end of the day, she's human. She doesn't want that to happen to them. And you see that and you see how badly she wants to fix this. That's fantastic. Yeah, definitely. 
I've got a couple of M moments of my own I want to shout out. Um, my first is when Bond shows up at her apartment. And her, the very first thing she says is, where the hell have you been? <laughs> Not like, oh, God, you're alive. But like, about goddamn time. <laughs> After she ordered the shot. <laughs> oh, it's great. Um, my other one. Um, and then there's, um, I love that she gets the first F-bomb in the entire franchise. You know, I fucked this up, didn't I? That's the first F-bomb of the whole franchise. And M got I it. Judy Dench got it. Um, and then my third one is her final words when she's dying in Bond's arms. She looks him in the eye and says, I did get one thing right. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it, I did. La- I did have to laugh when in that hotel scene when Bond's like, all right, I'll just go home and change. She's like, oh, no, your apartment. It's it's gone. We took the clothes and everything. He just the face Craig gives her. If you could pause it, it's gold because it's like he's so disappointed. He's like a child. He's so sad. <laughs> That his place is gone, and she's like, "What is standard protocol for when you're dead?" Lovey's like, "Well, I'll find a hotel." She's like, "Well, you're bloody well not sleeping here," and just walks away, <laughs> like completely unfazed by his charms. In this, like, not at all. Yeah. He's not even a man to her. He's he's a weapon. Yeah, but like you said, you see at the end that she did care for him. She absolutely did. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, so I very nearly went with judy dench myself but i had to go with my gut and i went with javier that's a good one like i said it, the other two i listed i was really tossing was like who am i gonna pick and it really does come from silva's like i talked about it earlier is incredible transformation from creepy weirdo to sadistic cold-blooded psycho and it's so believable and it's so well executed that you're just on the edge of your seat the whole time. You wonder like, what is he going to do next? Like this dude is two steps ahead of them at all times. And I love that. He's the, pro- you know, he's the past come back to haunt them. And it's so awesome. And then of course, later, you know, inspector it's revealed he was a specter agent the whole time. Like, of course. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> uh, yeah, I think Javier delivers a hell of a performance. Um, one thing I like that the Craig era did is it brought legitimately fantastic well-respected actors back to the bond franchise not to disparage the first 20 but for the longest time the bond franchise was goofy you know it wasn't like it was respected but it was kind of like you know oh you're gonna you're gonna play a bond villain like ham it up but the craig era you know we've got oscar winners like javier bardem and christoph waltz playing like frightening villains and then you know powerhouses like mads mickelson and then you know you got quantum but we, we don't talk about quantum. <laughs> and to an extent, the villain, no time to die. We'll get to that tonight. <laughs> but, well, and also I think, like, what I like about his era is that they brought in very complex, nuanced villains. Because you even, like, your combat, he goes from this, like, weirdo to a psychopath. There's a, it's a line of dialogue I actually cut from my ranking. Um, but when he takes takes Bond out to that shooting range and he puts, you know, the glass on her head and you kind of see that the first instant of, to me, psychopath and that that was the first instance you finally get to witness it firsthand. And he, you know, he has Bond shoot, Bond misses and he, no hesitation, shoots her dead center and takes her out. And you see just how truly despicable he is. And the line I cut was when Bond says, it's a waste of good scotch and then kicks her ass. I felt so bad for her. Like she was just, you know, a slave who had one moment of like, maybe this guy can help me. 
and she was shot to death for it. it like that's pretty damn cold uh, for this franchise. Usually, there yeah, if uh, typically if a woman ends up in that situation, it's because she betrayed Bond or something at some point. But she was innocent, and that was just really rough. <laughs> um, yeah. So Javier, I I just think you know what a fantastic bad guy. And even in the end, like when he gets the knife in the back, he's not like, you know, angry or hurt. He's more like, so just irritated. Like I, I was almost there. Like just that, like Rory does a bond. is like, come on. And then he just dies. It's, it's so, oh, I just, yeah, it's nuts. Yeah. No, he, he, God, it, he's fantastic. Right. If I had a runner up, I'd, he'd be there for sure. He's uh, he's one of my favorite villains in this whole franchise. But I also don't want to disparage Daniel Craig's incredible performance as Bond. I think his best performance might be in Skyfall, uh, just as a Bond who's kind of at the end of his at the end of the line, you know, and kind of wonders like, how much longer can I do this? And has to you know like that moment where he's doing the test and he fires and he misses, and there's no dialogue there, but you just see the anger in his face of like angry at himself like you are 007 why are you missing like you're better than this you can see it in his eyes like i can do this and i just i yeah i thought craig did an amazing job i think maybe the best performance of james bond in the franchise is craig in skyfall oh it's a toss-up between this one and now no time to die because i really liked him in the newest one yeah i'll give you that there he got to do some some stuff bond's never really done before in no time to die yeah, which we'll talk about next uh, on Monday. <laughs> yeah, yeah well, you're hearing more about that for sneak preview, but no, I'm no by all, no means am I disparaging Daniel Craig. He is lights out in this role. Like you said, that little scene, um, his little flirts or witticisms, but everyone involved in, like you, he really gives you a very well-rounded, complex look at Bond in this one. I and love he, that he has zero animosity towards money penny about nearly killing him yeah i do like his like his his jabs at her were funny it's fine i heard it's harder to hit a moving target i like when he tells her that or she tells him that she's transferring to a desk job and he goes i for one feel a lot safer (laughs) just just to needle her just a little bit more yeah (laughs) and i also want to shout out ray fines or i'm sorry ralph finnis as <laughs> I love the red herring of Mallory. You think he's going to be this government thorn in their sides who's trying to shut down the project. But over the course of the film, he learns to appreciate what they do. And then, you know, even takes a bullet for him at the trial. I love that. Or at the hearing. And then picks up a gun and, you know, the lieutenant colonel or whatever he was comes back and you realize, like, this is a soldier right here. And he takes on the mission. He joins Q and, like, helps them figure out figure out a way to trick silva and ends up becoming the new m and that's just it's cool to see that we never get to see an an m's origin story before and that was really neat so i thought he did a great job he was a great pick yeah he it was hard because yeah there was actually two scenes two are seen of the small one in that minister building when that minister went shut up (laughs) and you hear him go hey how basically like we haven't heard anything from yeah, and excuse me, Minister, for, for the sake of variety. May we actually hear from the witness? Yeah, I was like, you, I was like, you fucking go, 
he'd tell her it was like the most British way of being like, shut the fuck up and let her talk. And I didn't realize for years that the minister who's given her the business is Helen McCrory, which is great. Um, Narcissa Malfoy from Harry Potter. Oh my god, yeah, oh, okay, wow, Peaky blinders. Okay, I didn't know that, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, the other, my other favorite moment with him, like, there's that little quick line he says, right? My other is when Q is down in the, the basement, they're trying to help Bond without anyone knowing, and all of a sudden he pops up with his cast, and they're like, oh, uh, sir, we're just, uh, he's like, shut it, I know what you're doing, what do I have to do to help? Yeah, he's like, good work, let's do this. I love that <laughs> moment where he's like, yeah, he's on their side, he's a good guy. Yeah, it's like, oh, okay, he's not going to be a Thurn. He actually wants to help because now he's mad because he just took a bullet. I do love earlier when Bond is about to be sent back on active duty and he goes, good luck, Bond. Don't cock it up. (laughs) And then walks out. (laughs) And you can see Bond is just like, oh, I like him, like sarcastically. (laughs) Oh, good. Um, So that takes us to the Roger Deacons. Um, I'm very curious what you have as your best scene in this film. I, let me tell you, man, I had to narrow this down. I think I wrote in like five or six fucking scenes. It was everything from like the Q introduction scene to like the opening J sequence. But what I ultimately went with, what I've always loved, which always stood out for me, is the entirety of the Silva's escape and attack on end. Just that entire sequence of him escaping and attacking that, the, the whatever that place was that they were meeting at westminster there you go and the fucking train coming through like just an expertly done action sequence that really showed you how powerful how ahead he is how powerful he is how how far he's willing to go to get this done yeah that was badass i know a lot of people uh compared it to the joker's plan in the dark knight kind of a you know getting caught on purpose and then you know, causing chaos and how, how is it controlled? And I'm like, shut the fuck up. Just enjoy a movie. But I, I think it's great. I think, you know, from Q accidentally hacking MI6 himself and then Silva escaping and, you know, getting the cop uniform and Bond jumping on the train, health and safety. I love that. (laughs) I like when he's like, he hops on it and he's like, open up. And she's just staring at him. Open the door. (laughs) He sounds so annoyed. Like, why are you not moving (laughs) can you see i'm holding on right now can you open it (laughs) yeah that's awesome and then it leads up to you know silva attacking m and the way m is reciting the poetry you think like oh this is it like she's gonna die but no mallory takes her bullet and silva's like fuck years in the making and that's he gets stopped by you know a politician (laughs) he's kind of kind of funny I like during the shootout when uh, Mallory, I'll call him that for now because he's not officially M yet, and Bond look at each other and Bond winks at him and then shoots the fire extinguishers. I love little moments like when Bond just kicks a gun to Money Penny, and like just the trust he has in, in his friends. Like you believe it. Yeah, it's like, yeah, you know, it's why it's like to me like those small little interactions that were so well done hit harder because yeah he's he's ribbing them and he's you know messing with them 
but it's all in good fun. You know, at the end of the day, he trusts these people with his life. He absolutely trusts them. He trusts Kira's life. He does trust my opinion with his life, even though she shot him and he appropriately gives her shit for it. But he does trust her. And like you said, in that moment, he knows what to do. He needs help with this. So he kicks her the gun. I love that Mallory independently just grabs a gun, finds a corner and starts, you know, shooting like, you know, country first. I love that. <laughs> my uh, my scene is a little bit more subtle i didn't go with an action sequence i um i went with the ending of the film uh the introduction of money penny officially and the new m because to me like at the time this felt like the beginning of the bond franchise like casino to quantum to skyfall was the origin story and now here we are like it felt like Ray Fines was, you know, the Bernard Lee M. Money Penny was at the desk. The office was exactly the same. Even the dialogue sounded similar, and it just felt like here is the beginning of a wonderful adventure, and it made the Bond fan in me smile so big. So I, I just, I've always loved that bit, and I, I wanted to shout it out. No, I, that's a solid little moment and a great way to finish the movie too. And yeah, no, it that was a really expert scene and. Yeah, like you said, at that point, if you know it's Bond, he calls him in. He's he he has earned the respect from Bond. To, yeah, you are my M now. Oh, yeah, it's just it, it's great. And then after that, of course, we get the gun barrel sequence to, at the end of the movie in you know fifty years. Great. And the whole Bond will return everything. Which I remember when I saw, it, I was like, oh man, this is exciting. But yeah, no, that uh, yeah, I do remember like. I remember the first time I saw the movie and like I was watching, I was like, oh, they no. And like as soon as I said my parents, I was like, oh my God, it's just like the original movies. That's so smart. Because I mean, I had forgotten that with Single Royale and Quantum, they didn't really because they went all in on the whole fresh reboot. So they were putting everything in immediately. So having that build up the two prior movies and then this one. And then kind of capping it off for that and saying, like, okay, now we're back fully to, like, that classic style of Bond that you guys have known and loved for 50 years at that point. Yeah, and then to follow that with a full-blown return of Spectre was just delightful, you know, for the fans. Like, fuck yeah, this is great. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Fantastic. Yeah, this was a blast. I give Skyfall a nine. Uh, It's a fantastic movie. I know it didn't make my top five, but fuck off. And it is a very fun, exciting movie and one of the best in the franchise. Yeah, I gave it a nine as well. And it might easily go up to a 10. I mean, this really is, you know, it stands since the first time I saw it. This is my personal favorite in the entire franchise. I I adore this movie. I think they just, they know everything with this movie. Everything just works. There's never a dull moment for me. I, I love this movie to death. That's high praise. I like it. Um, so this was fun. Uh, I've been, I have loved the shit out of Bond Week on <laughs> Film Guys and Productions, Casino Royale, Skyfall, No Time to Die on Monday. This has been so much fun. Um, next week, we're going back to 2001 to celebrate the 20th anniversary of David Lynch's Mulholland Drive, a really bizarre, hard to follow film that is actually pretty good. And that's coming from me, who kind of hates David Lynch's work, most of it. But you know what? Austin loves this movie to death. It's one of his favorite movies. He is so looking forward to this. He will be back next week in the captain's chair. 
and I can't wait to be like, you know, Riker or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> I don't, I don't know Star Trek well enough to make this metaphor. Yeah. I fell down the stairs with this one, didn't I? <laughs> I'll say with Star Trek, man, I've seen the, the Abrams trilogy and Discovery and Picard and that's it. Okay. Good. Well, I don't, I don't. I will be over there and Austin will be here. There. I don't know. And I won't be in that episode. No. No, you won't. A whole <laughs> and drive. <laughs> yeah, here's two. I've seen it one time and uh, it was good. I mean, you got to be razor focused to f- even to follow this thing. But like, if you just, you know, you get up to get a drink or something, you better pause that shit or you're not going to know what's going on. Dude, that can be applied to anything, David Lynch. And <laughs> Look, if there's anything you truly need to be razor focused on when it comes to David Lynch, it's that third fucking season at Twin Peaks, man. Oh, that, has, started. that is one that you have to sit there and just be prepped and ready for. I was. I was prepped and ready. And I lost, what, 18 hours of my life? I However so. many episodes I, I that is. I thought thing, too, yeah. Oh, oh. Well, Especially we, the, the origin story of the, the town. And, God, that was a weird episode. Yeah, what is 17 episodes of goddamn Dougie one Cooper? Fuck you. Anyway. And then we got a weird thing where his head came on the screen. He said, Is this a dream? As the show's playing, I was like, what the fuck is going on? And then it has the weirdest ending that I'm like, I don't know if I want this to continue or just act like it ended at season two, honestly. Oh my god. All right. I'm ugh, no, stop. No, no, save it. Save it. We're going back to Lynch next week. We did a our 100th episode of Filmgasm uh, was Twin Peaks Firewalk with me, where I got to unearth all of my animosity towards David Lynch and his work. So I guess we're going back to that pool next week. So get ready to hear me bitch for about two hours. Apparently season three of Twin Peaks really gets you. It was just so much with no payoff. That's that's what bummed me out so much. It was if it had been like six episodes, I would have been like, oh, that was lame and moved on. But it was like 18 episodes. I, all that were like an hour and a half long. It it was daunting. I remember when I I watched the first one, I was like, oh, I really like this. And watched me, I was like, you know, this movie is weird, but I like it. And then I was like, all right, let's do this show. And that's the first episode. I remember I looked at my roommate at the time. And I was just like, what did I just watch? He's like, I don't know, but we started it. We got to finish it. And I was like, oh, I'm not hating on Twin Peaks. The first two seasons I really liked for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. It's just three was a fever dream that Lynch wrote down and nobody corrected him on. <laughs> uh, well, anyway, that's next week. So more Lynch, um, a lot of Naomi Watts, a lot of I honestly don't remember who else is in the movie. It's been a while, but Naomi Watts and the other girl. So <laughs> I'm. I'm butchering this, I know, but whatever. Uh, I'm not hosting this show maybe ever again, so I'm going to enjoy this. <laughs> uh, it's like the, the angriest type from Austin later, like, I go on vacation, and this is what you guys do with my show. <laughs> he comes back, fucking places on fire. I'm just sitting in the middle of the room with a microphone going like, I don't, li- I don't like David Lynch. I just, I just don't. <laughs> it's not even plugged in. Season three made no sense. It made no sense. <laughs> what was that one episode? Why, would, why did we get an origin story on the town? It made no sense. Time jump. Lesbians. I don't know. I don't know. Okay, that's all I got. Okay. <laughs> oh, my God. All right. This was fun. 
Uh, Mahone Drive next week on Oscar Sunday. Don't miss No Time to Die on tomorrow's sneak preview and 2018's Halloween on Wednesday's Filmgasm. Very excited. Prepping for Halloween Kills next Friday, or I guess this I'll Friday. I already got my, I got my ticket last week for Halloween Kills. I'm ready. Noise. <laughs> I'm going to sit home and watch it at Peacock on my phone. I hate you. <laughs> of course, I'm going to be there at the theaters. The opening night, Thursday, of course. Oh, I've been looking forward to this movie for a long time now. We'll see. I'm not gonna lie. I'm going Friday. <laughs> three years. It's been three years since Halloween. I know. I remember, I remember you emailing me. I was on the plane. You're like, dude, they delayed it a year. And I'm not gonna lie. I was like, sucks for you, but for me, that's the best thing I heard all all day. <laughs> well, here we are. The delay is over. We're getting the movie. I'm gonna see Michael Myers fuck up Haddonfield again. It's gonna yeah, be fun. Based uh, off what I've seen on reviews, if you're not a horror fan, you don't understand why we like this. If you're a horror fan, it's one of the best slasher sequels. Yeah, but like, if you hate musicals, you're not going to go watch Les Mis and be like, this isn't my kind of movie. <laughs> like, no shit, you don't like musicals, so fuck off. Do <laughs> you think I watch certain types of movies? I'm very aware of what my type of film is, and that's what I watch. Yeah, it's ridiculous. People, it slays me, really. Like, some horror fans going to watch Halloween Kills and be like, this is trash, I don't even like this. Well, then why the fuck are you talking about it? <laughs> get out of here. Go. Y'all, yeah. get out of here. Get. Go on, get now. The only time I will ever watch something I don't want to watch is for the podcast. And I'm like, all right, well, I got to watch the podcast. Oh, thanks. I appreciate that. <laughs> don't go there. Sorry you know, I'm wasting your time. I don't want to hear it. You know, I know for, don't go there. Don't you fucking give me that. You had to sit through Pitch Black. And I know you don't like that movie. Right. I had to sit through it again. That's right. Didn't care for that. I've had to watch so much weird shit because of you guys. Hey, look, that's more trash than me. I'm going to go on and say that right now. Oh, text uh, me later if you want, but it's totally you. More than it is me. I will say this. I have had to watch more shitty movies on the sneak preview than I have on Filmgasm or Oscar Sunday. Honestly, yeah, I feel like out of all the films, like, it's, it's sneak preview that we've watched most of the shit. Yep, and that's nobody's fault but Hollywood. <laughs> Can't blame that on any of us. Yeah, it's not my <laughs> fault. They're making bad movies. Nope. But we're getting a good one with Halloween Kills. So, and The Last Duel, which looks promising as well. Sure. <laughs> Whatever. I, admit, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I'm actually more excited for his House of Gucci movie than I am The Last Duel. Yeah, me too. Me too. House of Gucci looks like a change of pace with an insane cast. Dude, every time that trailer plays and it's Academy Award nominee, Academy Award winner, Academy Award nominee, I'm like, Jesus Christ. I know. I know it's fucking lights out. I love it. Uh, yeah, so good shit coming. I think the fall is going to be busy for us. Uh, really cool shit. I'm so psyched. Halloween Kills is one I've been looking forward to for a long time. And uh, boom. So yeah, check out all our shit this week. And uh, if you want to hear more about Bond, tune in tomorrow for sneak preview. Thanks for listening. Had a blast. I want to thank Caleb for helping me steer this ship today. I just want to say it's nice to be on Oscar Sunday again. Hopefully Austin stops moving the schedule around for the ones I wouldn't be on. <laughs> Nothing but love. Nothing but love. Nothing but love, but I had to say it. It's oh, a little God. funny. It is. It's funny. Yeah. Uh, this was your second, I believe, right? To- Toy Story was, was it for you so far? Yeah. All right. Yeah. Knowing what, what we got coming out, I know you, there's a couple you're going to you wanted to be on that I think it's going to be very interesting. Yeah, but. I remember those when I said, I won't say it now because I don't want to ruin the surprise because it's an awesome show, but I remember you were like, really? You liked me? I was like, dude, I fucking love this movie. <laughs> yeah, surprise, surprise. 
So yeah, uh, get used to his voice. He'll be here a couple, a couple more times in the fall. And uh, as I said, you'll see Austin again next week. So thanks for listening and we will see you then. 